Hello, and welcome to Media Evil, a medieval pop culture podcast where we talk about how medieval and medieval inspired movies, TVs, and books depict the medieval world. What did they get right? What did they get wrong? And what do they tell us about how modern people see the medieval past? I am Sarah F. Decker, a medieval historian, and today I'm joined by David Baxter and Matt Welsh of Thank You Five to talk about the 1967 movie musical Camelot. So welcome. Hi, I'm David. <laughs> and I'm Matt. Matt and I have a musical theater podcast called Thank You Five, where we kind of take a show and break it down, sort of in the plot and a little bit of the history. We're trying to have it be just sort of another thing out there for people who don't have access to go see every single theater show in existence to, to know what shows are out there and why you should know about them and listen to them and watch them and know their importance. I chose Camelot as it's one of the musicals that's set in a medieval period. And it's from a musical theater standpoint, it's a, it's one of those important shows that not a lot that people know about, but not a lot of people know about. Like when you think about musical theater, you don't first usually think Camelot. You think like Phantom of the Opera, Hamilton, Les Mis. But um, it was a very popular show in its time. It has a bunch of very famous stars from Julie Andrews to Robert Goulet to even, I don't think it was his first show, but John Cullum. Most people, he's a big musical theater person, but most people know him as the older man on Northern Exposure, which I think is also a dated reference. <laughs> but he was a, a he was in the original cast of 1776. Oh, okay. He, he was. was I, I forget I the guy's name, I Matt. I don't know if you remember the name, but he's the the representative from South Carolina who wants slavery. Oh, yeah. Rutledge, yeah, the intense slavery yeah, yeah. song he's guy. He's the one who sings uh, molasses to rum. <laughs> But uh, but yeah, that's John Cullum. Um, he played, I think, Sir Dinadin in the original Broadway cast. But yeah, so it's it's a lot more well known than say something like <laughs> Martin Gare, right? Which I did not even know was a musical until you mentioned yeah. it the other week. I yeah. know the book. It's um, it was done <laughs> by the same people who did Les Mis. Yeah, huh. I don't. Okay. It never made it to Broadway, and it's not very well known. But there are some good songs in it. That actually sort of follows for me in that Martin Gare is not something I would have thought of to make a musical, and mm-hmm. Les Mis similarly, although I adore Les Mis. Every net, when I, I actually read the book before I started listening to the musical, and my response after reading the book was essentially, how would you read this and think this should be a musical? <laughs> and, and they were right, obviously, yeah. but I just can't imagine having that thought myself and Return of Martin Gare Yeah, I mean, it gets very... I, I, I am not too familiar with the book of Martin Gare, but it's very like mm-hmm. soap opera-y in the musical. Like, right. you know, I have come back and nobody knows who I am. I <laughs> uh, say so Matt and I, uh, we both know each other from, we live in New York. We do, we've done some theater stuff together. So mm-hmm. um, we originally met on a production of 
25th annual Putnam County Spelling Bee, I think it was. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. And okay. yeah. And then I think nice. I think at one point I had posted something on social media saying, if I were to do a podcast where I take the slight lyrical deviations from the American and the London version of The Baker's Wife, would anyone listen? <laughs> and David was the only person who was like, uh, do you want to do something with that? And so, and here we are. <laughs> Exactly. And, that, and the rest was history. But yeah, I, I think of myself as a person who likes musical theater, but had actually never really listened to or had any experience with Camelot uh, prior to my appearance on your podcast and uh, watching the film for this podcast. So it was, uh, mm-hmm. it's very fresh to me in terms of, uh, I don't, I don't have a nostalgia surrounding yeah. Camelot uh, that will yeah. affect my opinions uh, mm-hmm. the way I do with some things I, I watch on this podcast and uh, would for some yeah. other Yeah, well, I also find that Camelot comes from an era that I think to the modern musical theater ear sounds very dated. Yeah. And I yeah. think that is really hard to get around. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that you do have shows that have kind of managed to transcend that. But even then, you're looking at stuff like a lot of Rodgers and Hammerstein. Mm-hmm. Even My Fair Lady, if done in certain ways, can sound really, mm-hmm. really dated. And um, I think Camelot really kind of goes with that because every song almost sounds like something Barry Manilow is crooning (laughs) in a white suit. (laughs) It's also from the era where a lot of what was played on the radio were covers of things that were on the Broadway stage. So like, I think the the biggest song uh, from Camelot that's still kind of known today is If Ever I Would Leave You. It's you know just the standard mm-hmm. creepy ballad, but yeah, it, I mean it, it's kind of it's kind of on the the outer edge of that era because it was early '60s when it first mm-hmm. came out, and by the end of the '60s, mm-hmm. uh, I think that there was a song from Hair, but um, they were kind of getting out of the 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 idea of we need our next pop hit. Let's see what's on Broadway, you know. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, right. <laughs> and then you have random outliers like uh, One Night in Bangkok with Chess yeah. and. Um, this is the moment mm-hmm. in Jekyll and Hyde mm-hmm. until you get to Hamilton, which I think is one of like the first big uh-huh. one. Like, is one of like mm-hmm. the few shows in modern times where there has been a pop crossover. Yeah, and six mm-hmm. has to some oh, okay. extent that as well. Okay, I didn't know how. I didn't know how many people outside of like musical theater TikTok. <laughs> Yeah. Did, we're, we're into six. I mean, not into six, but like... Right. I mean, I I don't know. And I guess I mean more the, yeah. the vibe, I think, mm-hmm. lends itself to that. I mean, I'm not sure. I think it's so new that I don't think it's quite there in terms of having made mm-hmm. that kind of connection. But I think if it is able to reopen on mm-hmm. Broadway post-pandemic, it's, I think, would lend yeah. itself to that really well because these each of the wives is very much inspired by a particular pop singer. And that is the vibe mm-hmm. of each of the songs. Yeah. Which is a brilliant idea. I'd... Uh, it, it, it's similar to something oh, yeah. uh, from like the early the early aughts called Alter Boys, which is another kind of mm-hmm. like musical as concert kind of thing. And yeah. I, I, yeah, I'm surprised we haven't seen much more of that uh, in the past, you know, 20 years mm-hmm. or so. Just because yeah. a lot of musical theater now is really geared towards teenagers, really. I mean, Wicked is definitely a, a show for, for, for like mm-hmm. teenage teenage kids who just feel out of mm-hmm. uh, you know out of the out of the loop mm-hmm. and a lot of you know they're uh, a lot of kids still go to concerts they still you know <laughs> love things like that so yeah uh, why not? when I went to go see um, be more chill I was mm. 
I was like this. I, I didn't think I didn't think poorly of the show, but I was very much like everything here is amazing, but I am not the target audience for this. <laughs> But yeah, so uh, today we'll be mostly focused on the film that came out in 1967, although we'll have references, I'm sure, to other (laughs) versions of this throughout. So and this is starring Richard Harris as Arthur, who it occurred to me as I was watching both this and the 1982 filmed production that also stars an older Richard Harris, obviously, since 82 (laughs) is after 67. But uh, it occurred to me that I am not 100% sure I had ever previously seen Richard Harris as a young actor in anything, and that I might have only seen him in as Dumbledore in the first two Harry Potter movies. Oh, wait, wait. That's Dumbledore? Yeah. (laughs) Yes, that's that's original Dumbledore, and then he died between two and three. <laughs> I didn't put that together. <laughs> but no, I, I know I'm just like, making that connection now. <laughs> yeah, I, I know what you mean because I'm I'm racking my brain and I I know I knew who Richard Harris was before, but I couldn't tell you anything that I'd seen him in. Um, you know, I you know he has that yeah. kind of delivery that's kind of spoofed lovingly by a lot of actors, you know, where, where it gets very quiet. And then it gets very loud. <laughs> right. Uh, but yeah, but I, I felt I, a, I very on display. I felt film. a little bit of a similar way watching young Angela Lansbury and the Harvey girls. Oh, we were like, yeah. I've not really used mm. to seeing you in a mm-hmm. young role. Yeah. 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 Um, and then you have actors like Hermione Gingold, who, who is yeah. Broadway, but did a lot of movie things. Yeah. Did a lot of okay. movie things. But she was, I mean, she was old in the 70s. Yeah. And so, yeah. but even when you see her yeah. in older things, you're like, oh, you were sort of born. Yeah, she, at was, she age. was born at 73. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You were born old, yeah. right? <laughs> if, if, you, if, if listeners don't know uh, Hermione Gingold, but they have seen the movie of The Music Man, she's one of the mm. town ladies, I think the mayor's wife. And during the Pick a Little, Talk a Little song, okay. she's the one who says, Balzac, as they're listing the authors <laughs> that uh, they, should, they should ban from their library. Which is a delivery that's very permanently in my head, and that is how, what I think of every time I think yeah. of Balzac. <laughs> we also have Vanessa Redgrave as Guinevere, who is, of course, excellent, and... Uh, Franco Nero as Lancelot. And I love that they have this very, very obviously Italian actor who is doing just this hammy <laughs> French accent. But also, I guess he can't sing because they have a different person, uh, Jean Merlino, instead of uh, providing the singing voice for Lancelot, which there are definitely moments. I think I looked that up during yeah, but- <laughs> the film. And once I knew it, I couldn't mm. unhear it. Yeah. Which is, was a fairly standard thing at, at this time that there there's a famous story where is it marnie nixon is that her name because i always confuse her with the buffy writer oh yeah. that's marnie <laughs> noxon so um so marnie <laughs> nixon who is most known for being the singing voice of eliza doolittle in my fair lady also a learner and low show mm-hmm. um plays one of the nuns mm-hmm. in the sound of music and when okay. she was when they were filming it and she knew that Julie Andrews was cast. She was very nervous because she was afraid of meeting Julie Andrews because uh, she was afraid that Julie Andrews was going to think they were going to dub her singing voice using Marnie Nixon's voice. And so she had like sort of a whole thing of like, <laughs> oh, no, no, I'm, I'm not like, you know, how do I tell her that I'm not here to replace her? 
<laughs> also, fun bit of fun bit of trivia about Marnie Nixon. Her son Andrew Gold wrote "Thank You for Being a Friend," which became the Goldfinger's oh, theme song. Okay, so oh. <laughs> fancy. That's, cool. that, that's something that always sits in my yeah. memory. So now it's in yours. Yeah, it's like the ring, <laughs> passing it on. Um, yeah, uh, they, they met. Julie Andrews didn't have that thought in her head, and she was very pleased. And she was like, she was like, "Oh, I'm a, I'm a big fan of your work." <laughs> and so there wasn't anything, but <laughs> Marnie Nixon kind of yeah, got it in her head of being nervous about that. And I could be wrong, but I believe Marnie Nixon also dubbed Natalie Wood in West Side Story. I think so. Yeah, I could be wrong about that. She was she she did a lot of yeah uh, singing for other people in movies. <laughs> <laughs> Well, so I'm going to give uh, in the enumeratio section just a very brief recap, at which point we can jump into some more general discussion of the movie slash musical. Mm -hmm. This recap will be very brief because this is a story that will be very familiar to, I would say, people in general and particularly people who listen to this podcast, since it is, uh, of course, you know, perked up by lots of songs, but it is in many ways the very standard story of a Arthur marries Guinevere, he and Guinevere are in love, Lancelot shows up, and in this film there is a brief period of them disliking one another, or at least of Guinevere disliking Lancelot, that then slightly inexplicably switches to passionate love for one another. And we have the love affair, which is of course ultimately exploited by Mordred in ways that result in the end of Camelot and the destruction of all that they have worked for together. Cheery. Cheery no. <laughs> Ended on a high note. <laughs> exactly, ending on a high note. We, we've got a little mm-hmm. bit of a cheery bit at the end, which we'll uh, we'll we'll get we'll get to. We we start back. We start kind of in media race, right? That we start with this look back at this moment where they're outside Joyous Garden, about to have this war, and uh, instead uh, Arthur asks Merlin to take him back to the beginning. And he uh, goes back to the moment. It was first actually has this bit where in the film where he goes back all the way to when he's first meeting Merlin. And then Merlin's like, you idiot, no one you met me for the first time when you met Guinevere for the first time. <laughs> yeah, that, that scene felt really weird for the fact that it was a three hour movie. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I had a lot of thoughts about that yes. while watching this of moments. Especially because, and this is like going very, very ahead, but I really enjoyed when watching the 82 production and listening to the song tra- the soundtrack, I really liked Mordred's song mm-hmm. about vices. Mm-hmm. And they, yeah. they don't have that. They get rid of it. But they have all of these things that I feel like don't need to be there. And they could have cut like a lot of them added back in Mordred's song and had the whole thing still be like mm-hmm. 20 minutes shorter yeah. at least. Yeah. I do think this movie... I actually, I've been growing in an appreciation for Camelot in general, but I really think this movie needed an editor or Mm -hmm. a a different editor to like trim it down. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But yeah, we'll we'll get into that. Yes. (laughs) And and also, I mean, the show comes from, it was originally three acts and that was very common at Mm -hmm. the time to have a a three act play or musical. And it's very rare now. I mean, we've. We've whittled things down so much now that there there are tons of like one act, ninety minute in and out mm. uh, musicals uh, playing Broadway. Now, if you're uh, going to do a three act show, you might as well right. just like slap on a fourth act and then split it up into two parts so you can sell more tickets. Exactly. Right. right. Come back tomorrow. Yeah. More money. <laughs> but yeah, I think I think I was reading that in the original like first production it had like a four and a half hour runtime yeah. or something like that at which point they were like you you can't no. you can't do this <laughs> i think somebody made some comment about like the only thing longer is like 
Tristan and he sold or something like that. Or th- th- there was some comparison to like Tristan and he sold. And they were also at an opera center. So I think it was at the Kennedy opera center. So it was very much, it was that whole, like, okay, come on. <laughs> so we have our first big song, which is uh, Arthur back as a young man about how he knows what his people are thinking. And it's that they're having a weird obsession with the king's sex life <laughs> is apparently what the people are thinking. But he, in, in reality, is actually not cheery and excited about his wedding night, but is deeply terrified about his wedding night instead. And, and this is where some of the casting and some of the, the, the really, the focusing on some things always kind of irks me about this show <laughs> is because usually you got to get a guy or a yeah, most of your people have to be a little bit older to do some of these roles since most of the show takes place right. when, like, you know, 10 to 15 years after this scene. Mm-hmm. So having like a 40-year-old playing an 18-year-old who's nervous about getting married. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and then seeing him 15 years later live on stage. Yeah. Doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Right. And it, it's very much right. like, hello, like, hello, my fellow teens. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Right. But I will say having watched, so I watched the 1982 film production Mm. first and then the movie. And because of that, I was like, oh, he looks so young. He's so like young and and charming. So it actually really worked for me in a way that I'm not sure it would have if I'd seen the Mm. movie first. And would have just been like, mm. yeah, he's ancient. But, Especially since um, the 1982 version. But yeah, just the comparison. The 1982 version keeps giving him a scarf, I think, to wrap around his neck to kind of like. Yeah. Right. Hide the telltale. Yeah. <laughs> oh boy, yes. It's, there's a little more humor, I felt like, in mm. this performance than there was in the 1982 production. Uh, it just, uh, it. I don't know. I felt like it got carried off mm-hmm. fairly well as him being a bit, mm-hmm. a bit youthful. Mm. I also have to say I adored the staging in this film of Guinevere's mm-hmm. first yes. appearance. Yeah. So that it's Vanessa Redgrave and she's being brought forth on this. Uh, oh, I don't even know what it's called. It's like a litter? But this, um, yeah. like litter. Yes, thank you. That's the word. <laughs> so she's being brought forth on this litter and everything on the litter. All, it's all of this bedding and white, and she's wearing all white and is kind of wrapped in fur and peeking out from beneath this litter. And has a mm. great dog who is, uh, I think, a whippet because I think it looked a little small to okay. be a greyhound. Okay. I don't know too much about dogs, but it did. It had a greyhound look, but I don't know enough about them to notice this the, the size for the the breed. Uh, yeah, so yeah, I could be wrong, but it looked a bit small to me. So I'm I'm so I'm I'm voting whippet, which basically looked yeah, like small I say- greyhounds. Uh, as, yeah. as the dog breed. <laughs> I, I have a lot of Yeah, there thoughts. were a lot of good boys in this in this movie. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> the, the the litter thing kind of like because I'm so used to seeing this as a stage production, not that I've seen it a whole lot under the stage production, mm-hmm. the way she was kind of brought in, I was like, it like a lot of things in this movie. At, in the first 20 minutes, I was kind of like, does that really, oh, okay, this looks aggressively 60s. And then, but then at some point in time, it just yeah. like clicked in and I was like, you know what? It's okay. It's fine. She's wearing a boatless, shapeless, mm-hmm. you know, A-line or like boat neck thing with like a poofy hair. Like, it's fine. It's totally fine. It looks great. Let's <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 
And all the costuming anyway is like quirky yeah. Ren fair. Yeah. So yeah. we're just mm-hmm. going to accept that and move on. <laughs> but you know, this was, this was fun. It was a fun look. And uh, Vanessa Redgrave, I think is a really interesting mm-hmm. Guinevere, especially in this bit at the beginning, mm-hmm. because she plays it very seductive mm-hmm. and very knowing in a lot of ways. Yeah, I, I mentioned in the, other, in, in our podcast that Guinevere, I think is such a interesting character because there's so much you can do with her because I feel like Arthur and Lancelot and Mordred and Galahad and all of them usually have a very set, even like people like Morgan Le Fay and um, mm-hmm. other and Queen Morgoth and a lot of the other characters in the story have a very sort of well-defined personality. Guinevere doesn't. Right. And you can, you can do a lot with yeah. her. You can mm. be Kira Knightley in the King Arthur movie. Mm-hmm. Mm. You, you could do that, <laughs> yes. Uh, you could do whoever <laughs> was in um, First Night. I forget who played Guinevere. Oh, I don't know. Julia oh, okay. Ormond, I think, okay. is her name. Yeah, and I've, I've seen, you know, clips of, of different productions of Camelot where, of course, everyone thinks Guinevere, she's the soprano ingenue, so she's very proper and everything. So seeing Vanessa mm-hmm. Redgrave and what she did with it mm-hmm. and how desirous yeah. she was of being <laughs> of of living her her maidenhood you yeah know. oh it it, it was yeah kind of, it's kind of refreshing mm-hmm. actually <laughs> yeah like this is like sex kid yeah. in guinevere and it's you know it works it's it's fun it's a fun way to take that yeah. to take that part and she seemed very like sure of herself at the whole time like i mean she she still seemed very like it, it was a very definitely like in in this scene she's very much like Doing some sort of like Paris Hilton thing of like, you know, like I just want what every girl wants to have like a mansion and a guest house the way that you're supposed to, you know, like <laughs> yeah. because I know nothing else. Like she, she's. I just want people to have a war about yeah. me, like all girls. <laughs> <laughs> and she's okay. Like she's totally like just very much like this is what I want and I don't care if, uh, if you know. <laughs> My reality is that all teen girls want to have a war fought over them. And if someone says otherwise, I don't care. (laughs) Yeah. I also will note, and I feel slightly resentful about this. If you do the lowest bar of a two-line exchange, this scene technically passes the Bechdel test. Because her attendant gets a name. Her name is Clary. And they have a conversation about the forest. Okay. That's very true. Where they do have a two-line exchange where men are not mentioned. (laughs) Yeah. Passing the Bechdel test by, like, one. (laughs) By a hair. hair. (laughs) (laughs) So it's worth noting that it does, although I resent it. Because it feels like it shouldn't. Well, I mean, yeah. I mean, isn't that kind of like the... Part of the whole thing of that, like, oh, absolutely. Like the TV show Firefly, I think barely passes the Bechdel test, and that's like barely for how many women are in the show. Yeah. So it's kind of like the bar of the show, right. or the bar of the test. I'm not saying it's a bad test. I'm just saying like that's kind of the point of the yeah. test is that like the bar is so. That yeah, that the point of it is that it is just such a low bar, and that it is astonishing how few things pass with the bar mm. being that low. And for this podcast, I also have an even lower bar test, where there has to be at least one named woman who doesn't die. And I have seen multiple films for this podcast that do not pass, but this one in yeah, fact does. Yeah, I, I was thinking. Yeah, the, yeah, you're. Right. <laughs> they only have two named women, so. <laughs> 
but Guinevere at least definitely yes. is alive at the end. Uh, it's it's been a long time, and Clary was pretty old at the beginning, so mm. I'm not sure how she's doing. But uh, Guinevere mm-hmm. is definitely alive because <laughs> I think like 30 years are supposed. It's to a long time because right? there's yeah. there's five years yeah. in between when they first meet and then the roundtable scene. I think there's another five years in between the roundtable scene and Lancelot showing up. And then I think there's even another like five years in between that and Mordred. And then I don't know how much passes after that. Like it's yeah, the time skips are a lot, but also never really mentioned. Right. But it has to, but it only makes sense if you assume it's a good about Mm -hmm. 20 years. Also, by the way, I am just going to note now very quickly the thing that I noticed on this watch Mm -hmm. about Mordred, which is that based on the account of Mordred's birth, the implication is that that happened prior to when Arthur was king, meaning that I don't know why he is so terrified at having sex in the opening (laughs) song, because he has in fact had, he has fathered a child. Yeah, that's... Yeah. That's, that is very true. With an older married woman, too. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I would think he'd be much less scared mm-hmm. about Guinevere. I mean, uh, you know, the, his assumption is presumably that she's young and inexperienced mm-hmm. and uh, probably much less mm-hmm. intense and scary yeah. than mm-hmm. Morgos. Well, I mean, as we find out later on in the show, like, Arthur knows nothing about women. Like, he... <laughs> literally nothing. Like, he doesn't even know if they exist or not. Nope. Like, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, maybe that's I'm probably giving him way too much credit for that. True, true. But yeah, since uh so we have uh Guinevere sings a song where she prays to Saint Genevieve uh, to complain about how she has to enter an arranged marriage, a thing which every single woman of her class mm-hmm. has to do. And she is therefore truly shocked, shocked at the prospect. <laughs> And Arthur, you know, like falls out of the tree basically while she's uh, singing and reveals himself. And he's just really like kind of sitting there. He's like, oh, why is it Merlin here to explain women to me? It's like, buddy, buddy, it's not that hard. And it also, so, you know, we have this bit in this scene as well where he pops up and Guinevere is basically saying like, aren't you going to carry me off? And it's this weird scene that is feels especially weird, I will say, with the way Vanessa Redgrave is playing this part in that it's very seductive and she has this real demonstration of sexual agency in that she really seems like she knows exactly what she means by a man carrying her off. But then also it's like this weird rape fantasy. Yeah. Yeah. And then she like is, you know, but I'm like, you don't think I'm pretty when he says he's not going to do it. (laughs) Right. Yeah. 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 Also, I mean, it it seemed, uh, yeah. Because she's like, I'm sorry, I'm like in three different places at once. Like, (laughs) this feels a little bit like what she, like, if this was a Disney song, I mean, when Belle sings about, like, I want adventure in the great wide open, this seems a little Mm -hmm. bit more apropos to this because in The Simple Joys of Maidenhood, she's very... I don't want to say passive, but other people are definitely doing the things. Like, she is being admired. Right. She is being worshipped. She is being. Mm-hmm. She is not actively causing the war. She is, or if she is, she's doing it with, like, flirtations and glances and courtly intrigue. Mm-hmm. And then a, a giant war starts, and she's just sort of standing there like, oops, I don't know what happened. <laughs> Whereas in this fantasy, all of a sudden, she's being, like, 
carried off into the woods by a stranger. And that's a very different type of fantasy, but mm-hmm. it's still like very fairy tale action adventure, but it also doesn't match quite up with what she's been asking yeah. for. I feel. Yeah, it's very, I mean, it's, yeah, it's the kind of like outlaw romance as opposed to before, which was very much the chivalric mm-hmm. romance that she's essentially imagining herself as a heroine in, which of course is very funny because she is in fact the heroine of the most popular chivalric romance. Yeah. And all of those things will happen to her, just essentially. after her wedding day. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, it just mm-hmm. it just takes a while. It's, you know, it's the simple joys of uh, being, you know, a married woman mm-hmm. in your 30s or so. Which also seems a little odd. Sort of a, a stylistic choice, or maybe... It seems a little bit different in how she's describing it because a lot of those and her examples specifically are not necessarily joys of maidenhood. Mm -hmm. Helen of Troy was already married. I think she even referenced... Yeah, so it's actually a good parallel to the later experiences of Guinevere. Like I think she mentions... Does she mention Guinevere at some point in time? I mean, does she mention Helen at some point in time? I think like she alludes... Yeah, she says something like, uh, something like, why won't this face launch a thousand It's like... Like, Helen was already married, and then... Yeah. Yeah. That's the problem. Like, you don't notice <laughs> the, the, that in the story. Right. It, same thing with a lot of the fairy tales of, like, carrying off the, the queen, is that the, oftentimes the queen is married. <laughs> and that's also very much the case in, uh, you know, the kind of the, in the courtly mm-hmm. love tradition, is that it's all of these uh, young men who are professing love to uh, usually mm-hmm. married women. And that that's the that's the norm yeah. essentially. We don't cross that line. You just yeah. In theory. <laughs> In theory. <laughs> Big wink to the audience there. Right. And no. yes, exactly. It's like in theory, it's this pure love from afar that's never sexually consummated. In practice, mm. well. But I mean, that would also make sense. You know. <laughs> that I, it, when you mentioned about how she is about women of her class, that does kind of seem like of that sort of arranged marriage, she would be have grown up of people having arranged marriages and then having discreet affairs on the side. Mm-hmm. And the the problem is less that they're having the affair and more having it get out, being indiscreet about it or something like right. that. Yeah, and it certainly is the case that when we're talking about the this uh, kind of late medieval or kind of high to late medieval courtly love culture, which is the period that I would say, you know, that it's the period that Arthurian romances are being written in. And it's the period that I would say this is kind of implicitly set in because, of course, you know, the choices about Arthur that you either have the gritty, realistic Arthur, realistic mm-hmm. in theory, where it's in kind of sixth century post-Roman Britain, or you do this kind of thing where it's essentially set in the vague high to late medieval setting when all of these things are actually Mm -hmm. being written, which is fine Mm -hmm. as a choice, I think. But in that particular context, it is very clear that there is this discourse about love, but that love is never really associated with marriage, that marriage is something that's really about politics and money. And then love and romance is a kind of fundamentally extramarital. And of all of this medieval, and there's a huge amount of medieval love poetry and almost none of it is poetry that is about relationships that are within the context of marriage or even relationships that are likely socially to lead to okay. marriage. It's a very different than what you kind of think of like <laughs> this sort of yeah. the Catholic church runs all and everyone's under like the thumb of a priest or something like that. 
Right. I mean, obviously, adultery is is legally taken seriously, but in terms of this kind of romantic discourse, it is weirdly at odds. Uh, and it actually is interesting. So one of the most famous texts associated with this courtly love culture is uh, this is basically a manual. It's called The Art of Courtly Love by Andreas Kapalanis. Kapalanis meaning the chaplain. So this is somebody who is a priest. And there's also this odd like discord, like debate discourse about our knights are priests better lovers. <laughs> that, so it's interesting because on the one hand, there is, of course, this moralizing discourse and legal culture that exists, but it exists alongside of this literary culture, which is very, very permissive. And uh, you do have to assume certainly that some amount of this illicit sex is actually happening and uh, that, uh, you know, you you sort of hope that it doesn't happen too much when you're talking about elites and you're worried about the woman maybe, you know, passing off somebody else's child mm-hmm. as yours. But it's still, even with that obvious concern, this still is this kind of really prominent discourse. And there does seem to be this sense of, yeah, discrete affairs is probably mm-hmm. something that happened. Well, I mean, every single... Every single biography of every single royal that I have is usually littered with like their illegitimate children sort of like scattered, especially for men, right. just sort of scattered throughout there. I mean, the men don't yeah. even have to be discreet, yeah. right? I mean, <laughs> it's only the right. women. Like half the court is sort of the king's illegitimate children just kind of like given a position to right. kind of <laughs> make sure they don't do something terrible. Even for the women, you know, there are these kind of dramatic moments every now and then. So uh, Isabella of Isabella of France, who becomes the Queen of England through marriage to Edward II, ends up overthrowing him with the with her lover mm. as an accomplice. And everybody everybody knows what's going on there. There doesn't seem to have ever been any real questioning of her son's paternity. And he eventually, with his father being dead, uh, kind of takes over and executes mm. the lover. Like but, you know, and but like, yeah, but she basically then gets forgiven. I mean, she despite the fact that everybody knows that she overthrew and was almost certainly involved in murdering her husband, yeah, like <laughs> so that she and her lover could run things. Get it while you can't. I don't know. Where I'm going with that. Like, yeah. Right? <laughs> Arthur has his song that he sings uh, to kind of seduce Guinevere by talking about how nice the weather is. While they're sitting in the snow. <laughs> <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. It's that like, wait, it, it seems like a weird staging choice to me that on the one hand, I really like the snow and the way that Guinevere's costuming blends into the snow. And that's a very striking visual yeah. effect. But on the other hand, yeah, it's kind of weird that they're talking about how great the weather is while we're having this like, Moderate mm-hmm. snowstorm. <laughs> well, I just the, when she when she left. Uh, this is one of the things that happens a lot when I watch sort of movies that do something like this. Um, I'm always concerned about how cold they are, which makes it sort of feel like you know all of a sudden I'm becoming a parent. But like <laughs> when I saw Snowpiercer, the very first thing I thought at the very end of it is like, are they prepared for the inclement weather? <laughs> or at the end of the movie Logan's Run, my first thought was like. I really hope they don't all die of exposure. (laughs) (laughs) So she's definitely bundled up in the furs in her, Mm -hmm. in the litter, but then she like runs out of it and she's like, a lot of those furs are sort of blankets and things over there. And so she's in a cloak yeah, and then proceeds to like kneel in the snow and like hide in the snow. And you're just sort of like, (laughs) like, yeah, comfortable. (laughs) 
like that scene from the first Tomb Raider movie where she shows up in Antarctica mm-hmm. and gets off of the like plane or whatever, and she's just wearing like a light, thin cotton coat <laughs> that's open, and you can see her t-shirt, and you're like, you're in Antarctica, yeah. put some clothes on. Well, it's but, like uh, Game of Thrones made a decision to like, whenever they're up in the north, to never have their faces covered because they didn't want to have like the actors, right. whatever. But then... um I do have another podcast that's behind a Patreon wall, but we review Christmas movies. And one of them, there's this movie from like the early Mm -hmm. 80s that has Jacqueline, I forget her last name, but she was one of Charlie's Angels. And she has to like, yeah, no, not Jacqueline Bissett. Jacqueline, Jacqueline Jacqueline Smith. Smith, And she has to save the North Pole from oil drilling. And there's, there's like a bunch of scenes where like her and her kids are, have snow hats and snow things on, and you can tell who each one of them are. And I'm like, you can cover up their heads so we're not all sitting there thinking, are you about to die of hypothermia because your head is uncovered while you're in Antarctica or a snowstorm or whatever. Though I guess in Game of Thrones it's hard because it has to be sort of period appropriate, and so you have to have cloaks with hoods, and that I think obscures a little more of the face than like a beanie would, and the beanie would obviously Mm -hmm. be a little period inappropriate. (laughs) They'll have stocking caps or like some sort of right. Yeah, they've got like they got like little like crowns, but the crowns have some like fur uh, kind of kind of coming, uh, coming down from them. Or I've seen some people try and do the like the yeah. the the knitted hat that's like more than a beanie that has the ear flaps mm-hmm. that you tie under your your thing. I've seen that mm-hmm. try to get pass right. off as um, medieval ish in, in this movie are just glorious. They're beautiful. But you can also tell this is obviously not an on-location thing. It's like David Sedaris, uh, when yeah. he was asked about mm-hmm. his favorite soap opera like years and years ago, he was like, you know, there were there were some soap operas that, you know, you actually go to the beach, and I hate that. Like, I love, like, a beach scene where you can hear their heels click on the floor, you know? <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> and you can see where the water hits the the back. Yes. Yeah, with the rolling. <laughs> kind of like in the movie right. Soap Dish where they have that big set and like there's Yeah. <laughs> the army arrives and uh, Guinevere of course at first is very concerned that uh, her friend will uh, wart will be hanged or burned at the stake for abducting him, but of course they soon realize to Guinevere's <laughs> surprise that it is in fact Arthur and she's just like still like throwing stones at the like rocks that she picks up <laughs> on the ground at the soldiers mm. while Arthur while Arthur is in the middle of being like recognized as mm. king. I give her props for actually like fighting back in that way of like, Yeah, I mean, it's kind of cute. Like, yeah, like the snowballs are going to do nothing but she's trying her hardest. She's right, like yeah, we're like, going to get away. Take me. <laughs> And it's at this point that he then tells her the story of Excalibur and how he ended up uh, coming to be king, which, as we talked about this a little bit on your podcast, that it feels sort of unnecessary in that this is a story that I would presume pretty much anybody bothering to watch this knows already. And so it seems like it's it's this whole extra scene that to some extent makes this connection between them and that she doesn't want to be queen. He also didn't want to be king. But also, especially in the film, I feel like they've actually done a pretty good job of establishing this chemistry between them in like two over like a couple of songs. And so it felt in particular unnecessary from the point of view of making a connection between them and just seemed like a lot of detail that, as I said, I would assume basically everybody knows. Yeah. 
And also, I don't think they bring it up ever again. So, oh no, uh, you know, we do see Excalibur. True. Yeah. yeah, a couple of times. Yeah, but they don't. Ever, I was actually thinking about that uh, earlier today. We don't. We don't get some sort of like discussion of Excalibur. It's just the sword that he pulled out of the stone, and it's there. Yeah. <laughs> right. And then we see it a couple of times, and it's very shiny. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, I feel a. I kind of feel a better a better way to go with this would have been him trying to kind of downplay it um, a little bit. Like in the in the musical Into the Woods, there's a scene mm-hmm. where the baker's wife is like, where he asks her where she got the Rapunzel hair, and she's like, "Oh, I pulled it from Made It in a Tower." Like, <laughs> like yeah, I pulled it out of a stone. I don't know. Sorry. Yeah, don't no. worry about it. Yeah. Um, kind of lampshade the fact that everybody already knows that. Right. Yeah. And instead, yeah, we get all of this extra detail mm-hmm. about it. But after this, she does agree to marry him instead of running off into the great wild yonder. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I think uh, then at that point when we get our first time jump. Yeah. Because I think this yeah. is the, the wedding is after that. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, we do. Yeah, we do have the wedding, which is, I guess, close to immediately after their finding one another. Where the cathedral is filled with nothing but candles. No people, just candles. Yes. There's a lot of candles and there is one priest. Mm-hmm. And no one like, else. And no one else. Like, At the king's wedding. It's a private it's, – it's, it's like the ceremony that um, Meghan and Harry had before their big wedding. Right. <laughs> so the church has this complicated relationship with marriage because on the, essentially because marriage is defined eventually, and this is around when they're increasingly defining that, marriage is eventually defined as being a sacrament. Mm. But it is very distinctly considered to be inferior to just celibacy. Mm-hmm. That should be that should be the ideal, but it's I mean this is Paul, right? That Paul basically yeah. says like it's better to marry than to burn in hell, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a clear <laughs> but it's a clear spectrum, right? It's celibacy, mm-hmm. then marriage, then wild free sex mm-hmm. outside of the context of marriage. Yeah, and uh, so because of that, a lot of these marriages don't actually take place inside a church; they take place on the steps of the church. Oh, okay. Yeah, and yeah, and you see this language in uh, in text sometimes, right? That it says like, and we pro- like they're that they're signing a marriage contract, and then it says, and like we say that we promise that after this, we're going to get married at the face of the church, like at the facade of the church. Okay, because it wasn't yet a sacrament, so there wasn't necessarily. It's, it's sort of it's a sacrament, but it's like a sacrament that they feel a little Ish. weird about. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, I knew that one of my professors. I remember talking about. Was it a professor? I remember I remember something to the effect of, especially for like the peasants, because mm-hmm. they didn't always have access to a local priest, a lot of right. them would have like, you know, if they said vows to each other and lived as a married couple, as long as they eventually got blessed by a priest at some point in time later down the road, they would be considered to be married. And it didn't necessarily matter right. that they had been living together without a formal... Mm-hmm ceremony right i mean you don't really legally need the priest to be involved right that mm-hmm. it adds the sacramental quality but yeah that really what matters is uh is the vows that the exchange of consent in itself is actually something that creates a fully valid and legal marriage mm-hmm. that like especially like if you say like we if you exchange vows and then have sex then you are married regardless of whether a priest is there or not which essentially also means that like there is an issue with clandestine marriages and that's in part why mm-hmm. they try to actually push the importance of priests okay. is to cut down on these clandestine marriages uh, which are annoying because they ruin families economic plans. 
Yeah. So, mm-hmm. you know. Now you have to like go to Gretna Green, not just go into the woods. <laughs> and, like, right, right. <laughs> but yeah, that priests are then discouraged from participating in these clandestine marriages, of course. Okay. But we So they do get married uh, and we have our first time jump where he's looking at the map of England, which I will discuss later as a map, and uh, describes it as basically this lawless mess and uh, that he has to figure out how to rule while Guinevere is just like naked on the bed. Yeah. Yeah, post-coital conversations where, you know. Uh The honeymoon was That's funny because Arthur is fully clothed. Yeah. Yeah, true. Well, that's like, actually, no, that's kind of the opposite of like, most post-coital movie scenes where the guy is like just kind of almost completely splayed out and the mm-hmm. the same bed sheet barely covers him whereas she is almost completely wrapped up. Right. Um, whereas this is a lot more artist model Stanford White and Evelyn Nesbitt kind of <laughs> without the sexual assault. Right. So, uh, yeah, so they have this, uh, yeah, conversation clearly post-coital about mm. politics and uh, about this idea, essentially, that uh, might should not be the same as right, but then instead uh, might should be used in the service of right and essentially invent chivalry. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so they spent a lot of time talking about the knights and the problem with these kind of marauding knights and that this is how you you kind of tame them, essentially. And eventually they come up with the idea of having the round table. Uh, we get a lot of cuts kind of back and forth, oddly. So at some point we leave the bed, we leave the bedroom and Arthur is sort of wandering around kind of yelling at birds about this round table. Mm-hmm. And... <laughs> At which point, you know, Guinevere is, oh, you know, I've got, I've got a table just like that in storage. Seats 150. <laughs> <laughs> I have just the thing. Yeah, it's, it's been sitting in our in our storage space for years. I totally forgot about it. It's 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 the, it's the guest round table. That's why I don't remember. <laughs> <Right>. it. <laughs> it's in like a back room somewhere. Yeah, it never really fits somewhere. It, it, it didn't go with the decor, so mother put it away and forgot about it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like it's like green and white, so it is very. I mean, it's very prominent uh, decor-wise. Yeah. I, I mm-hmm. think it would, you might struggle to fit it into a pre-existing decor scheme. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Especially when your decor is like, well, gold and doves. Right. <laughs> and a lot of orange, actually. Guinevere wears a lot of orange. Yes. Yes, she does. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which with the green and white is a sort of weird combo. Yeah. Irish, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Everyone's this movie Irish is like friendly. secretly, secretly pro Irish right. unification, <laughs> despite the lack of presence of Ireland at any point. Well, that's what it is, right? It's that Ireland should be independent, should have nothing to do with these weird English people over there. Which, fair enough. So he spreads the decree uh, that he is inventing this round table and this new order of knights. And I love, so there are messengers that are going around with things, but he also just throws a bunch of papers <laughs> out the window. <laughs> apparently a way decrees are spread. Yeah, all the people just standing right there below the window. And nowadays we paper, call it right. Yeah. Paper is not a rarer commodity than it is <laughs> nowadays. Right. <laughs> Right, but especially because at the point that this would be taking place, we actually have like parch. It would be like parchment. So on animal skin, mm-hmm. the earliest European paper documents are 13th century. Because uh, I actually okay. work with some of them. Okay. 
and especially something like this that's a royal decree, like, yeah, this would definitely be on parchment even when mm-hmm. paper starts to become a bit more common. Mm-hmm. And so, yes, yeah, so we're just, like, throwing all of these, like, scraped-off animal skins that <laughs> you spend hours writing because, you know, you every, obviously everything's handwritten, and then you just throw them mm-hmm. all out the window and say, oh, I hope somebody finds them. <laughs> yeah, especially when the population doesn't have that high of a literacy rate. Mm-hmm. Right. And also doesn't all live directly below the castle. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, it's Camelot. It's both as big and as small as you, you want. Right. Well, if right. he can control the weather in Camelot, as, as he says, then um, perhaps he can also control the winds and right, send the yeah, parchment off true. to where it needs to be. I don't yeah. know. But then why do you need messengers? <laughs> right, uh, yeah, it's weird that they have the both. Economy. And also I think they have, right, <laughs> they got they to gotta hire them. <laughs> Job creation. <laughs> and uh, this message does, however, uh, manage to get spread. Uh, we really see a lot of pe- people who look like peasants who we see reading the message and being like, ooh. And I'm like, honey, you're not going to tonight. <laughs> I also love that, like, they're just sort of sitting there in the field. They're hoeing their turnips. And then, like, a knight comes by and, like, passes them a piece of parchment. And they, they all come sure together. They read. <laughs> yeah. And they all just kind of come together and like unfurl it and go like, oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, no. Yeah. Chivalry. Cool. Oh, that that makes mm. sense. Yeah. <laughs> they feel like, you know, really what they want to know is they're like, wait, does this mean the knights are going to not kill me because they're fighting with my lord? Does this mean that? Because that would be fun. Yeah. <laughs> like, does might this mean the knights the are not going to just like steal my stuff and then leave? Depends on what you call right. <laughs> this right. Point <laughs> But the message does manage to make its way all the way to France, where it reaches Lancelot. Because mm-hmm. there's no part of England that is connected to France in any sort of way possible at this point in time. Right, <laughs> right. yes. <laughs> but yeah, so it reaches France, and Lancelot has his song. I mean, essentially, the kind of the kind of function of the song is that he goes like, what if there was such an amazing knight who was so good at everything? There is. There is, it's me. It's me. <laughs> and so it goes, tis I, I humbly reply. And it's like, is it humbly Humble. though? Is it? <laughs> and yes. yeah, and it, I find Lancelot insufferable, personally. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Just absolutely awful. He grew on me as an actor. Um, okay. I, yeah, I find the character completely insufferable. I found the casting to be fascinating because he uh-huh. looks so like... Donny Osmond, 70s porn star. Yes. Like, <laughs> he looks so cheesy. And the like, costuming doesn't help because when he's not in armor, he keeps wearing these weird things that are these like shirts that are open like way down to the middle of his chest. Like, he's like yeah. constantly in these like deep V necks mm-hmm. <laughs> with tights and like boots. Yeah. 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 <laughs> So it's these, yeah, ridiculous outfits. And Franco Nero just, also just, like, stares intensely into the camera just all the time. Does he think he's Judy Dench at the end of Cats? Right. <laughs> <laughs> a cat is not a dog. <laughs> and I do love, though, his squire. Because his squire mm. is so deeply relatable. Because so Lancelot's kind of talking and singing at him. And he's like, it's me. It's me. And he's like, oh, really? Is it? It was you the whole time? It's like very just deadpan. Like, yeah, no, I get it. I got it. <laughs> that He reminded me a little bit of there was a 
TV show. No, I'm pretty sure like a lot of adaptations do this, but um, there was a TV show in the 90s. It was a cartoon. It was the adventures of Don Coyote and his sidekick, Sancho Panda. I've never heard of this. It sounds kind of charming. Yeah, I, yeah, I kind of want to watch yeah. this. <laughs> and I forget, like, but, like, in it, their Don Coyote was, like, you know, he's going into every town and, like, he's, like, it, like, it opens up. Like, he imagines the windmills are, like, evil trolls that, mm-hmm. and so the whole thing is, like, Stancho Panda is, like, so beleaguered of, like, oh, my God, here we go. No, don't, no, okay, I can't stop you now. <laughs> And his sidekick seems very much like the sort of the yeah. the, the, the the Sancho Panda. Like, yes. <laughs> like I can't stop him. Uh, here we go again. <laughs> so yeah, so he makes his way to England in a very small boat, I will note. Mm-hmm. I was about to try and make a white ship joke, but I couldn't quite <laughs> maneuver around that. <laughs> Was I still like, can't do it. Oh, you're mm. you're you're the best, but you didn't swim the channel. Oh, okay, okay, okay. Mm. yeah, okay, okay, mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Like I'll stay here. <laughs> yeah. He shows up, and uh, Arthur rides by, and I guess, and basically, accidentally knocks him off his horse, and he runs forth and insists that they need to fight, and uh, uh, of course, manages to unhorse Arthur quite quickly, and uh, then very dramatically goes, "Next time you mess with me, remember that you are challenging the right arm of King Arthur." To which Arthur then goes, "Really? <laughs> you know, I'm King Arthur." <laughs> they have their uh, dramatic interaction, and. Uh, Again, there is a like smoldering look that Lancelot is turning on Guinevere, or is turning on Arthur. And mm-hmm. uh, once again, this is also I felt true in you know, the 1982 production. I think it really is the writing, the chemistry between Arthur and Lancelot is much more intense often mm-hmm. than the chemistry between Lancelot and Guinevere. Mm-hmm. And I think they made it work a little more in this film just because Vanessa Redgrave is uh, playing things so sexy yeah but lancelot seems at least as into king arthur as he does as Gwen- as he does guinevere yeah i was getting some very like bisexual king ho yay sort of um yeah. vibes and normally that is very i feel like there's a lot of adaptations of king arthur where they do make lancelot either gay or bi or in some way mm-hmm. queer but We'll get to the scene later on where he is reviving Sir Dinadin <laughs> that just got yes. like, <laughs> that kind of like solidified that that's uh-huh. that reading of, of it in this movie for me. <laughs> yes, yes. Arthur does forgive Lancelot uh, to Lancelot's great concern that he is deeply suffering about all of this since he feels so guilty about having unhorsed him, but he is delighted to be included and asks for a challenge, uh, to which point Art, to which uh, Arthur responds, well, there's not a lot going on today. It's uh, Things things are kind of chill. But uh, he does let them know that uh, it is the day in which it, uh, they are going a-maying. There's going to be a picnic. People are gathering flowers. We have this uh, kind of interesting little uh, sort of masculinity bit of uh, Lancelot saying, knights gathering flowers. To which Arthur says, well, someone has to do it. And besides, we should have a few civilized hobbies. <laughs> <laughs> one time, one job I used to have, I don't remember who told me this, but it was like a manicure is a luxury, but a pedicure is a necessity or something along those lines. Mm-hmm. And I remember like 
one of my friends got her husband to get a pedicure by saying that to him. And so she kind of got him hooked on those. Uh-huh. <laughs> So yes, there are there are some <laughs> quote unquote feminine things that once you get men to do, they will very much be yeah. um, right. addicted to. Right. So we, we do see them gathering flowers, which is nice. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have the lusty month of May, which looks absolutely just on the verge of having an orgy. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> In this film. Mm-hmm. I, having watched a couple different versions of this now, Vanessa Redgrave's Lusty Month of May is so sexual. Yeah. <laughs> yes. And it also, I feel like, then is interesting because it really leads into the whole Lancelot thing because this seems like a woman who wants to have an affair because mm-hmm. it's dramatic. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and it, it, it also seems inter- like during this version of the Lusty Month of May, she is not as involved with all the other people. Like, mm-hmm. like it seems like an orgy is about to break out around her, but she is not participating. She's sort of directing. Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. Like you, you go and make out with them yeah. and mm-hmm. I'll sort of, you know, sing about, I'll, I'll sort of encourage some illicit sex. I'm not participating mm-hmm. right now, but wink, I might. We, we yeah. lit some candles down by the pond to go check it out. Mm-hmm. Right, right. <laughs> she's, she's like the the artistic director or the <laughs> director of operations, like for the clipboard. It's having a great time. Yeah, yeah. just, just mm-hmm. or, organizing orgies. Uh, mm-hmm. duty, the duties of a queen. Yeah, truly. Well, I do have to say, and I'm kind of I'm kind of jumping ahead, so so forgive me. But in the next song, then you may take me to the fair. I just got this feeling that take me to the fair was a euphemism. And that, oh yeah, like all it's three, very yeah, flirtatious. Like all three yeah. nights that she's talking to and getting to challenge Lancelot, it's like, and then we're gonna go have sex. Um, oh yeah, so I, so it's I very know. flirtatious, and especially because it's also this weird song where she's kind of negging everybody. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> so much so, yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I I really want to have sex with you, and I know I said I could. <laughs> But, I mean, I just feel like you're not as good as Lancelot. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. excited when people are, are physically abusing Lancelot. So, balls in the floor. Yeah. <laughs> I just want people to fight for me. Yeah, exactly. Like yeah. all girls. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I thought some of the, the artistic choices, too, in Lusty Month of May were kind of interesting to see what they were pulling from because mm-hmm. – her outfit and her long hair seems very much like that one painter from the turn of the century whose name I forget, but who like, like there's one of the, her of like a lady knighting and not with a sword of, on a knight who's kneeling in front of her and she's uh-huh. got the long hair. Yeah. I think he's done some ones of like the lady of Shalott in a boat in the river. Like, Oh, um, shoot. Um, Malay. Maybe. I don't remember his name at all, but I know it's a very famous painter. It's turn of the yeah. century. It's very like art deco, yeah. Lots of like women with long hair in vaguely medieval right. settings, like in nature. And she's yeah. like got long hair in a vaguely medieval setting and she's in nature. Yeah. And then like they start going into some sort of like Baroque thing of her on a swing and like it's the trampoline. It's a very obvious reference to that uh, that Fragonard painting. Yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. that uh, very famous uh, like Rococo painting of the lady mm-hmm. on a swing, which I kind of hate. Yeah. I. <laughs> 
Yeah, I, I I see it referenced in so many things. Like I started having flashbacks yeah. to Frozen because of like the trampoline and the <laughs> right. the lady on the swing. <laughs> right. Yes, yeah, so it's some really interesting art. Yeah. Pieces. And it did seem interesting to compare that to something like Disney's Sleeping Beauty, which really has mm-hmm. has a lot of similarities in the in the way that it is a medieval piece with a very 50s and 60s styling. Yeah. Cuz like her dress is very like Christian Dior, I think is the, right. the cut they were going for. But Disney did a lot of trying to do like medieval illuminated manuscripts in the styling of everything else. Mm-hmm. And here I feel there's a very lot of like mod and art deco styling going on. Yes. And then this like this weird Baroque slash Rococo flashback of like <laughs> – Another era, although that is, in a way, it kind of makes sense because that is such an overly extravagant period. And mm-hmm. that painting, I does feel, has a very, like, whether or not it's what it was meant to be, it gives off a very, like, pre-Marie Antoinette, lavish, yeah. aristocrat feel. Yeah, and it's it's a, it's a movie that is very, I would say, yeah, impressionistic in its blend of artistic styles. Mm-hmm. And because at some point, I mean, because you see various things, there's a lot of things that are sort of Ren Faire-ish, and then there's this kind of Rococo bit, there's this uh, sort of pre-Raphaelite aesthetic, uh, you know, medievalism mm-hmm. aesthetic. There's uh, also art in some in the uh, in the throne room and in the church, or yeah, maybe it's just in the throne room that mm-hmm. is very like there's some there are some sculptures that look like they're Rodin. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think also in the throne room, there's a stained glass that kind of looks like the stained glass that you get in medieval cathedrals, but it's the stuff that they put in in the 60s after yeah. the nice medieval stuff got wrecked. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like the replacement then, stuff or whatever got bombed in World War II, basically. <laughs> right. And then Guinevere's hair is always very mod. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Very yeah, poofy, the, uh, very... Yeah, medieval bangs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we we've discussed like this on on uh, on our podcast before, and it's like a favorite thing to like point out. Like, if let's say a movie was made in the eighties, but that it's set in like eighteen sixty, so everybody's dressed kind of in eighteen sixty sort of fashions, but their hair's mm-hmm. feathered, you know, and mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, like the and they've got blue eyeshadow for some reason, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, there's a Vincent Price, The Mask of the Red Death, mm-hmm. where uh-huh. the lead at the the I don't remember I don't know what her name is, but the sort of main character point of view character that we're all supposed to be following around mm-hmm. since there is none in The Mask of the Red Death, but like she has bangs and like a David Bowie mullet, Fantastic. <laughs> like, and it's supposed <laughs> to be middle. like medieval peasantry and she's like right. and yeah she comes in with this like yeah with this whole like poofy short long short in the front long in the back listening like, to a walkman you know, yeah just like, like, warmers. yeah uh, and yeah and there's um oh what's that movie uh bill and ted's excellent adventure we've got mm-hmm. some like hair crimping going on mm-hmm. so very 80s so yes yeah, there's a lot of yeah. this like aesthetic uh aesthetic blending yeah. i would mm-hmm. say yes. yeah I think you, you also see it a lot in the BBC, oh, especially yeah. in stuff in the 70s, yeah. mm-hmm. <laughs> where, like, you know, it's Regency and all of the patterns are, like, straight polyester disco <laughs> fever. <laughs> Arthur at some point also does has this, like, super mod outfit that he's wearing that is, mm-hmm. like, a red and green and maybe a bit of yellow. And it's, like, these kind of, and it's these kind of like, geometric patterns. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, the, the costuming in this is kind of both amazing, and I, I kind of want to know what's going through their heads. Yeah. Cause, <laughs> right. And it's fun. I enjoy it. Yeah. 
Yeah. They, their coronation outfits, I just kind of have stuck in my head. Like the the, the, yes. the gold armor thing that they're both wearing. Right. And she has this like armor dress and this like weirdly shaped crown. Like I don't know mm-hmm. what was the rationale behind it, but I kind yeah. of love it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> the dress here, it, it, it has about three different ways. Yeah. And it kind of overflows <laughs> in some spots. But I actually, like, the more I watched it and the more I sat with it, the more I really, really liked it. Especially when, mm-hmm. after the song, when they're sitting down to have lunch, it was very picturesque. Like, it was, yeah. it seemed to be sort of what, in The Little Mermaid, like, when she first becomes a human and, like, they wrap mm-hmm. the the canvas around her then try and tie it up with rope, it seemed like, do that but make it fashion. <laughs> and that's right. what Guinevere's dress <laughs> right. in this outfit in this scene is. <laughs> And then she proceeds to just, like, take a giant piece of chicken and, like, gnaw on it for the rest of the scene. Just having a good time. Just having a good time. We do also meet our, uh, we have a, we meet Pelinor at this point, Mm -hmm. uh, who uh, pops in. He's very confused. He doesn't know what king he's the, or what country he is the king of. He's lost it. (laughs) It has, like, actively rusty armor. Like, we keep hearing it squeak. Mm-hmm. Yeah. This release is another one of those things like I don't understand why Pelinor is here and I don't Right. Especially in a three hour movie, I feel like he could be cut <laughs> entirely. Yeah. He his main function to some extent is that he becomes the person that Arthur has conversations with. Mm-hmm who basically can't be Mordred Lancelot or Guinevere because they're involved in things that are going on, right? It's a basically yeah. Arthur needs like a friend mm-hmm. who can be like, hey, Buddy, what's, yeah. what's what's going on here? <laughs> and he, I mean, and he's also comic relief because none of the other characters yeah. are overtly comic. You know, yeah. they have their moments, but that's not their purpose. Mm-hmm. But we we probably don't need to know as much about him, mm-hmm. yeah, as we do. <laughs> as right. opposed to him just being like our children, friend. I'll tell you my entire life story. Yeah, now. we don't right. need to know like. I feel like I think a lot of it is that is the yeah, because we we know a lot about him. We hear a whole thing about like, oh, you have beds there, Camelot. Yes. Has, what what sort it's of like, luxury I is slept in a bed in years? <laughs> mm-hmm. But we don't know who he is or why he's there. Yeah. I mean, if you read Once and Future King, you know who he is and you know why he's there. Mm-hmm. But if you haven't read Once and Future King, you're kind of like, okay. And this bit that oh, my kingdom, I mislaid it somewhere. It's like. Mm-hmm. Uh, Who's this like poor elderly man with dementia who were not who are now going to like give an important role in the court? Yeah, like there's some poor kingdom out there that doesn't have their ruler who's probably right. being ruled by proxy, maybe being torn apart by civil war, and we could yeah, have fixed you know. that. But eh. Eh. also, they think that would like show up at some point in time of like, well, okay, which they can't sort of triangulate of which kingdom in the patchwork quilt of England is missing its royalty. Right. Yeah, you would think. You would think they'd be Mm -hmm. able to figure that out. Although it Mm -hmm. seems like things are so... I mean, it seems like things are so messy in terms of what's happening in England right now that, like, I don't know, he's probably fine. He's probably got a cousin who's taken over. Whatever, I guess. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. He was kicked out by the Saxons. We can't get it back yet. Yeah, Yeah, don't worry about it. (laughs) Yeah. 
Lancelot is uh, introduced to Guinevere, who takes an immediate dislike to him. And it is they do some fun things, in particular with uh, Lancelot, allegedly at least, not understanding English very well, or people at least acting like he doesn't understand English well. And so we have this bit where uh, Guinevere starts questioning him about his humility, or lack thereof. And she says, you know, like, have you thought about humility recently? And he goes, humility. And she goes, humilité? Wasn't it fashionable in France this year? I thought they had good chemistry here because they were supposed to not like each other. And I really liked this scene, especially in the movie. I I feel that the 1982 version, I I didn't feel that they... Well, actually, in general, I I think when Guinevere and Lancelot are fighting, Mm -hmm. it's interesting. When they're gazing longingly at each other... It's not. That is, I think, a really common problem with Guinevere, is that Mm -hmm. Guinevere, pre-falling in love with Lancelot, and especially in some ways in this bit where she's sort of arguing with Lancelot, but also even in her relationship with Arthur, she's fun, she's got a bit of spunk, she's got some personality, Mm -hmm. and then as she and Lancelot fall in love, she loses all personality and agency and fun. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And becomes just sad. When when Arthur shows up, she's like like he's introducing Lancelot, and while he is doing that, she is like ripping off his armor so that they can right. go have sex in the woods. <laughs> right, and it's great because like Lancelot's just there, and she's like, "I have no interest in you. Like, why mm. are why are you talking? I want to fuck my husband." It's yeah. May, everybody. It's May. Mm-hmm. It's gonna be May. <laughs> <laughs> And they start handing him food. I think the way they set this up was was good because he he interrupts her. He he talks over her. He kind of does all this stuff, and she's just like, "I I I haven't seen my husband in a while. It's May. I want to get it in. Come on, like, yeah. stop talking. <laughs> Have some chicken and go away. <laughs> go pick a flower, dude. Yeah, yeah. And I liked that they do set that up well because you can see that like she does not like him right now, and even right. though he is a, apparently the paragon of everything, I think this is also might be his first instance with an equal who does not like him. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, and I think then it, you know it's it's really nice to then see the way in which she's uh, I guess maybe a nice is the wrong word, but it's fun to see the way that she's sort of manipulating all of these mm. men into doing something. <laughs> The next song is generally cut from the show. Like it's not in the 18, in mm-hmm. 1982 version. I don't think right. it's usually in licensed productions of it. It was cut from the original show, like right before the show opened. But it's it was kept in the original cast recording, and it's sh- you, you right. shall take me to the fair. Yeah, but yeah. they kept it in for the movie. Right, and uh, mm-hmm. I know you talked about this before, but it's it's fun, right? Like it seems mm-hmm. very sexual. She. Yeah is absolutely just nicking these men. Um, and there's a lot of her, like, she's, like, lounging in a hammock while, you know, trying to get one of these guys to do, you know, to do whatever, to, you know, to joust against Lancelot. At some point, she's, like, dancing on a table and just turns around and sees Lancelot and glowers. Like, she's, she's fine. Like, it's a good performance. Yeah. yeah. And she's, like, the first one, they're, like, he's holding the yarn for her, like, and she's rolling it up. And I do like the... That was a very interesting artistic at actory choice. Like, there was a whole thing. Uh, I remember when I was in school, there was a whole thing of like teachers trying to get students to 
be comfortable on stage. And so a lot of times they would just Mm -hmm. sort of give them something to do. Like there was a, there was one guy who was very, I'm not sure what the right term would be, but very not heterosexual Uh um, in the way he presented. And so for a scene that was supposed to be like couples arguing, um, the teacher gave him, here is a kit of a toy truck. I want you to put it together while you're doing this scene. (laughs) And so like that really like changed his demeanor on Mm -hmm. stage because he went from like being aware of his, aware of, aware of how his body was acting Mm -hmm. to being comfortable because he's already in his, and physically engage with something. So I see that with this mm-hmm. of like, she, you know, he's holding this and he's concentrating and she's wrapping it up. And then she's like, you're cool, but you're not as cool as Lancelot. Like, could you, <laughs> like which is, a, and that's a little, a, that really stuck out to me as opposed to like her lounging in a hammock in a chainmail dress with a giant hat. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> which stuck out in a very different way. Yes. But yeah, it's, it's, it's fun. I'm glad that they kept this in. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Of, was a, of the yeah. many things that they could have cut, this isn't one of them. <laughs> yes, I agree. I like that I like that it's in the movie. Um, yeah. I think it, it it definitely it adds something. Pelinor apparently doesn't like Lancelot either. I love that he says something like, why can't he be like the other chaps instead of like himself? <laughs> <laughs> is this when they call him Charlemagne? Or is Yes. That- Yes, it is, which I okay. So on the one hand, I'm fine with the fact that we have this vague 12th to 15th century slash sometimes just 60s aesthetic. Mm -hmm. I'm okay with that. But it bothers me that we have King Arthur thinking about Charlemagne, a person who came 300 years later. (laughs) I know that doesn't make sense that the one bothers that the one bothers me and the other doesn't. But it really bothers me that they're referencing Charlemagne. I is could that be because like so in Once in Future King there's a lot of references to other things. At one point in time they talk about the Norman Conquest and they talk about oh. like, like okay. you really have no idea when this is supposed to be set because it's not supposed to be set at any point in time. Right. And so there are a lot like so there are a lot of different discussions and Merlin is also there to talk about televisions and airplanes and things. So they're they're very it's not just one thing. It's a right. constant discussion of of these various events and various things. Like I think at one point in time, Merlin does talk to Arthur and say, "Talk about your Norman ancestors," like as if oh, this wow. is pre-conquest <laughs> or, or post-conquest. And right. I was like, okay. Wow. And so that hits different when you've been getting it hit after hit after hit after hit, as opposed to mm-hmm. yeah, because when you get a lot of it, it feels deliberate. Mm-hmm. Whereas when you just have this one little slight reference to Charlemagne, it makes me think they don't know that Charlemagne is later than Arthur. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> which they yeah. I kind of yeah, I kind of think of it like like the costumes in in Bridgerton versus the costumes in Emma, mm-hmm. um, the recent adaptation of Emma. I think they're both good, but in the recent adaptation of Emma, you can kind of tell where that the costumer knew a lot about Regency wear. Yeah. And then was like, okay, now we're going to mess with it. And this right. is how we're going to mess with it. As opposed to Bridgerton, I think it was more about we had this idea of colors and things, and now we're going to try and fit it on to a Regency period mm-hmm. as opposed to like going the other way around. Right. I don't love the reference to Charlemagne, but actually Charlemagne yeah. is presented in um, Einhardt's Life of Charlemagne as not being like a guy who has a lot of fun hobbies. So okay. it actually does make sense. <laughs> As a mm. comparison. Okay. So I'll give him I'll give them that. 
<laughs> yeah. I don't know much about I, I, I know what people know about Charlemagne, mm-hmm. but I don't yeah. know a whole lot about his life outside of like yeah. Pippin. Yeah. Right. And he's he's presented as being very kind of staid. Okay. Like he's very staid. He's almost like he's almost ascetic. Mm-hmm. Okay. Uh, in this, uh, so this is specifically, yeah, so somebody who's at his court who kind of wrote this uh, kind of biography of him and also has this whole kind of bit where he talks about basically like what what he's like, right? So like you have mm-hmm. this great king, like what is he what is he like to, you know, hang around and have dinner with him? And the answer is he eats very boring food <laughs> and has very boring hobbies. <laughs> <laughs> so that's very well, nice. Just- it's great. Yeah, I'm just imagining him like there was a Tiny Toons episode where Babs Bunny lost her personality. And so they show her like sitting in the library eating a sandwich. And she's like, like, was like mayo on white bread. Yum. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that's kind of like Charlemagne. Yeah. (laughs) And maybe Lancelot. And Mm. it is fun, right, is that it gives this kind of vague sense of everybody at court, with the exception of King Arthur, hates and is ganging up against Lancelot because he's this terrible, weird fanatic who keeps talking about how religious and also good at war he is and is just a very (laughs) unpleasant person to be around. And Arthur's like, you're great and I want to be best friends. And everyone else is like, who is this guy? And can we not? We only like you because King Arthur likes you. If you think that's your only in here, dude. (laughs) Yeah, and Arthur's trying to basically convince Guinevere to be nicer to him mm-hmm. and uh, to, you know, not support three people jousting against him. And I do love her line where she's like, well, you jousted with him and then became his best friend. Maybe, you know, they'll joust and then they'll all take a house together by the sea. <laughs> <laughs> Which I think is the movie I want. I want Lancelot and these other knights, like, taking a house together mm. by the sea. Mm. In some sort of, like, queer polycule. Like. Yeah. <laughs> Sort of three men and a baby, but like, <laughs> I don't know, three nights in a cabin, four nights in a cabin. I don't know, something. <laughs> I'll workshop four and come ni- back. Four nights and a dog. <laughs> yes. Because there are a lot of dogs. They open up a cabin in somewhere in like West England and it's mm. a dog rescue facility. <laughs> <laughs> or maybe we could have like Queer Eye for the straight guy. Yes, yes. And it's these knights who are coming back to court and then trying mm. to get the other knights to dress better and be less awful. <laughs> <laughs> Redecorate the palace. Yeah. File that for the like the, the end section. Right. <laughs> right. This is where we get the uh, how to handle a woman song, which mm. I hate. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it's just such a like, the straights are not okay song. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. I have a, uh, when I went to theater school, there are some songs that I can never listen to again Mm -hmm. because they have been permanently altered in my brain. And I had a teacher who gave me how to handle a woman and we worked on it. And I, if I didn't like it before, I really don't like it since. And I have not found a new new appreciation for it (laughs) (laughs) since then. I'll just put it that way. Yeah. And especially because the whole song is, why won't somebody explain to me how women think? Especially because, like, well, they don't do it very often. So, I mean, when they do, how do you figure it out? Mm -hmm. And it's also this dynamic where it's, he's basically saying, like, I just don't understand women. Like, I just don't understand what, like, how they're thinking and what their minds work and what they really mean. I'm like, she probably means what she just told you, which is that (laughs) she basically just told you 
I don't like Lancelot because I think he's an arrogant jerk. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like she, yeah. she basically just says that and he's like, women are such mysterious creatures. <laughs> Only I could crack this code of plain yeah. speaking. You know? Right. She even flat out says to him, you know, you can command me as the king, but it's going to seriously negatively affect our relationship. Mm. And if you are yes. asking me as a person, I'm not going to do it. Mm. <laughs> yes. And again, she, she's so clear. She's uh-huh. stating exactly how she feels. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's a mystery. What, did, what, what can we do? <laughs> I wish I could understand women. Yeah. I, I, wish, I wish I could. Mm. So mysterious. We go into our joust, which... Uh, so A, we could have cut maybe some of the celebrations around the joust. In particular, these people who have like weird... like pseudo African tribal masks that they're wearing mm-hmm. that I feel like we, we could have, we could have, we could lose that. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I think, I think what they were trying to go for this scene is maybe a bit of like pantomime theater masquerade type of a thing. Right. But I don't, I don't know how well that fits into a medieval aesthetic, especially right. outside of like, a 60s renaissance fair right and it could well it could work if it was actually a party yeah right i mean right i mean it's just it seems it doesn't seem like it quite goes to the joust it seems like that's a different thing i mean because they did have masked parties Mm -hmm. yeah the 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 whole scene is presented as like everything is around the fair as around the joust itself as opposed to like this is sort of because I don't know what the actual name of it would be but like some sort of like feast of fools type of a like of a right yeah, I mean, it's like you have the tournament, but then you have the party in the evening, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And maybe that has masks, but, like, you don't wear the masks of the joust. Also, there was a guy on, like, parallel bars. Yeah, <laughs> which is weird, because, like, it seems like that's very distracting. Yeah. At, at first, I thought it was going to be, like, a, a static trapeze thing, um, mm-hmm. which is very... It's sort of a circusy thing, but, like... Their trapeze doesn't swing, so you just so you're, okay. you're on you're on the thing, and you kind of you sit there and you fall back and you do tricks. So I thought it was going to go into more that direction, but then he started like doing flips around it, and I was like, oh, okay, no, this is going to be like like Olympic parallel bars, sort of a or uneven right. bars routine. I don't just happening in the background in the middle of a joust. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was a lot going on at this joust. <laughs> yeah, I was like, this is this is intense. This is just a lot. Mm-hmm. And the people seemed very, very close to the actual, like, right. collision point. Right. Not not the best setup. Yeah. So they joust. Lancelot, of course, uh, defeats uh, all of the knights sent against him by Guinevere and kills Dinadon. Mm-hmm. Who, okay, so when he unhorses him, he knocks off and kills him. He knocks off all of his armor and I guess also his, he was wearing like no shirt under the armor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Cause you don't need protective gear. It's kind of like, you know, corsets. You don't need anything protective underneath them. And everybody's always wearing, we've been wearing steel boned corsets since Roman times. There you go. Mm-hmm. But yeah, like armor is uncomfortable. It's cold and hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You don't need anything underneath it. Why would you need that? It's right. There's nothing that could dig or poke or whatever. It's very oh, warm no. for May, so it just kind of 
Yeah. Right. And it's also funny because earlier they said knights never get hurt in battle because you, you know, hit their armor and then it just makes like a little dent. And then this Mm. poor guy, they hit him and all of his armor just falls off his body. Yeah. Well, also they show all of the knights, like when, like the first one, like he gets knocked off. It's the first one he gets knocked off and he gets dragged along the center. um, Right. Yeah. 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 The second guy like flips off the back of the horse <laughs> to land on his face. And then this guy gets like knocked off and like he somehow slides off, gets dragged in, and like flips again over into the side railing where he lands face up, sans armor, with no visible wound. Right. Like He's at got first some I thought blood, but yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. At first, I thought they were going to have like some sort of like impalement thing, but no, he's just right. like dead from. I mean, there are a lot of things that could he could die from in that situation. That right. um, probably would, a lot of internal bleeding. Yes, <laughs> but in there's no like visible physical thing on the outside. He is just sort of there, mm. right, with his hairy chest out for the whole world. <laughs> right, and Lancelot miraculously resurrects him, which he does by basically whispering live into his mouth with their lips absolutely touching. (laughs) (laughs) And his fingers are interlaced with the guys. Like he's not holding his hand. They have like fully interlaced the fingers. Mm. Like there is a close up. His face is pressed against Sir whisper. (laughs) Like, this scene taken out of anything, you would assume that they were lovers. Yeah. Yes, like never has resurrection been so sexy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and let me just say, knowing actors, if you were to do this live on stage, that mm. scene would become longer and longer with every performance. Like, <laughs> I, I did, I did a, a play with somebody once who had to, like, you know, curse the heavens at, at, at one point until he, like, lost his mind and fell to the ground. It started off like taking 30 seconds tops by the final performance. It was like two and a half minutes. There was like, he decided it would be dramatic if I spit on the ground a few times and, you know, and then slowly get up and fall down again. It was, oh, (laughs) the actors are so weird. Yeah. This I can imagine. Yeah, there's a stage production. And then by like the last night, the Lancelot's just like sticking his tongue in his mouth. (laughs) Also, between this scene and there's another scene later on where like his face is pressed up against Guinevere's. Yes. There's something about Franco Nera that he looks like. I don't don't think he looks like he has bad breath, but he looks like his breath (laughs) smells like cigarettes and coffee. And so. I'm just imagining like that, like you're like doing this scene, you're having to do it for hours because there's probably multiple takes. You're just having uh-huh. to like, lie there with like his face, like smushed up against just, like, yours. On top of yours. Yeah. It's <laughs> the uncomfortableness of all of yes. that going on, unless you yes. already had some sort of relationship with Franco Nero beforehand. Right. And it's like I just met this man and he's just like up in my body. Yeah. <laughs> Guinevere likes him now because he resurrected a dude. So she kneels before him. And then he goes off to tell his squire, oh, I'm madly in love with her. To which he, I think, actually literally, like, well, he's like, I'm always like, I'm trembling with fear and terrible feelings burn within me. And the squire's just like, what are you talking about? (laughs) And then Lancelot tells him and I, he doesn't quite roll his eyes, (laughs) but he's close, which is very relatable. Mm. Yeah. (laughs) He's my favorite character. 
Yeah, he, he provides the comic relief that I want in King Pelinor. And I think yes. if Pelinor had more scenes mm. like this, I would be more into having him in the show. Yeah. But um, since we don't get those types of scenes with Pelinor. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah, I just want somebody to do like deadpan facial expressions in response to the ridiculous things these people say. Mm-hmm. That's what we yeah. need. <laughs> yes. Arthur is, of course, increasingly concerned at this point as they stare at each other. Lancelot then does uh, confess his love and Guinevere responds in kind. And uh, then Arthur comes in and we have like a lot of looks. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Guinevere is wearing like her hair is in this like low ponytail with a huge bouffant. Oh, yes. And she's wearing this bl- long sleeve black dress that has no collar, but it does have a bib section on it. Right. And like, <laughs> like she looks like she is in a '60s production of The Crucible or something. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah, it is fantastic. Yeah, it, it's kind of a great costume. Like, it does seem a little bit like, especially since everything else she has been wearing has not been so this something or other. You know, right. Guinevere of Blackbird Pond. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> it did seem a little bit jarring, but it, it it's not a bad outfit. It just it came out of like nowhere. It was like, is she yeah. wearing like, like a long sleeved shirt with no neck? <laughs> right. And then she goes from that to then in the night, in the knighthood ceremony, I think that's when she's wearing this like intense chain mail dress. Mm hmm. Which is gorgeous and weird, and I really like it. And also, we have some very good dog content, including Mm -hmm. an Irish wolfhound who is being introduced to two very small dogs who look like they are, like, fluffy white dogs that have been now dyed pink. Like, hot (laughs) pink. (laughs) Which is such a weird decision. Why did they dye two dogs pink for this movie? There was also all of the doves in this scene, or like yes. the doves and the pigeons. Like they even had a, they even have a shot of a guy in the rafters, like shooing the pigeons off of the rafters. <laughs> right. There's so, so many in, birds in this movie. Yeah. Mm. And then go who proceed to then go and land on the hem of Guinevere's dress. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Lots, There's a lot of, of animal birds. acting in this. Yes. Movie. <laughs> yes. They knight him. Uh, I love how, of course, Lancelot is the one person who just rides in on his horse. Mm-hmm. to be knighted because of course he is mm-hmm. and uh, Arthur increasingly is uh, morose and uh, clearly knows that something's going on with Lancelot and Guinevere mm. but ultimately essentially decides that he is a civilized king and has to put uh, general good above his own feelings and desire for vengeance so he's just gonna kind of let it go mm-hmm. while his and wife that goes has back an affair to- yeah, that goes back to what you were talking about with Simple Joys of Maidenhood is that this seems kind of standard for European nobility. Like, mm. this shouldn't be a shocker. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, you, you, you know this sort of stuff happens, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, maybe it's because Arthur was raised by, like, a single father mm-hmm. <laughs> and his on-again, off-again lover, like... Because Sir actor doesn't have a wife. <laughs> right. And is usually yeah. hanging out with, like, a couple other knights, including King Pelinor. So, mm-hmm. like, yeah. Yeah. And it's also, like, this is when he's sort of chatting to the sword, too. That he's like, we'll get through this together. They, <laughs> you, and I. And by you, he means the sword. <laughs> mm-hmm. like, okay. This is, this is your other friends. friend, I guess. Yeah. <laughs> 
becomes Sweeney Todd all of a sudden, just right. talking to his razors. Anyway. Yeah. We uh, have uh, popping in are uh, a bunch of uh, peasants from some village who are very pleased. Mm-hmm. because uh, they don't have to lock their doors anymore. And at first I was like, I, at first I thought they were complaining that they didn't have locks on their doors and they needed them. And then I was like, <laughs> oh, so, no. We're so poor, we can't even afford locks. <laughs> right. And I was like, oh, no, they're saying they're glad they don't have locks because that means there's that they're, because like there's no crime now because of Arthur, I guess. Okay, yeah. got it. Mm-hmm. Um, and they give him a basket of the keys, which seemed yes. a little not thinking ahead. Right, like I'm not if they saying, lock a door by accident. Yeah, yeah, it seems very, yeah. What if somebody locks a door? What if it's a self-locking door? What if, right. you know, like, that'd be, like, it doesn't seem like they're in a place where they, they would never need those keys ever again, right. even if everything is peaceful for the rest of eternity. Right, but it's, it's very symbolic, I guess. Mm-hmm. We also learned that there are now repeated knights who are making accusations of uh, Lancelot and Guinevere's infidelity. Mm. And uh, Lancelot then uh, fights them and always wins because he's very good at everything. And uh, then, of course, that means that they are wrong because he won. Uh, I did like that after he wins this, this little battle that they show to set this up, the knight who gets exiled, they do sort of like a bridal walk off. Right. Like they don't all just walk. They do like walk, step, walk, step, walk, step off into like exile. And we learn that there's like seven of them that have been banished. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which is We're getting into some Barbara Streisand territory. (laughs) Right. And uh, then we have, uh, you know, Guinevere and Lancelot are alone in the woods. And I love that she has this, like, intense orange dress that looks incredibly impractical for her plan of wandering through the woods. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which it seemed it seemed odd because it was, it was, like, tight in some places and loose in places. But you would not expect them to be tight and loose in the places that it was. And it was yes, very, like, <laughs> yeah. It's very like loose and flowing and something. Yeah, it's uh, it's it's quite the dress. Guinevere is basically like, well, I mean, at least he hasn't figured out the truth, despite seven knights accusing uh, us <laughs> of adultery and then banishing them all. And Lancelot's like, I am pretty sure he knows. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so uh, they are very worried they've got uh they've got and they've got these flashbacks of all of these moments of them together including some that make it very clear that they have indeed have se- had sex mm-hmm. yes <laughs> we get a robin hood prince of thieves in the waterfall moment right we get that uh we also get this bit where so she walks into his room and there is a wind machine blowing her hair while he is like lying naked in bed in the middle of the room with his shoulder hair just like hanging out for all the world to see. And then she just pops up with this like elaborate nightgown and her hair blowing in the wind indoors. Yeah. While she's also lit from the back. So she looks like she's in the total eclipse of the heart video. Yes. It looks like a music video. Mm -hmm. Which that did sort of seem like we go from like, they admit they're in love with each other to like, they've been having an affair for five years. And mm-hmm. because this movie is so long, the fact that we spend no time on this whatsoever, <laughs> except for this one song. Right. <laughs> and like these flashbacks yeah. indicating this lengthy affair. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because 
my se- I mean, so the 1982 production seems to imply that they did not actually ever go so far as to have sex. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because uh, to some extent, I think it actually is exploiting something of a tension in the Arthurian romances that some of them present this romance as very intense, but ultimately technically chaste, whereas others are emphatic about the fact that they do, in fact, definitely have sex. Mm-hmm. I, I remember yeah. reading. I remember watching the um, overly sarcastic productions video of the King Arthur mythos in general, and she talked mm-hmm. about how the illicitness of Lancelot and Guinevere's romance sort of developed over time, and so it was not yeah. always original. It was not always seen as bad, and then later on became bad. Right. Yeah, because initially it is just this sort of model of the courtly love tradition where you as a knight are kind of performatively in love with your lord's wife. And it's in part really about your kind of paying your respects to the lord as much as anything else. Mm -hmm. And it's sort of this model of that. And then uh, and so there's that way of telling the story. And then there's the way of telling the story, which really emphasizes uh, the... uh, illicit sex aspect and the ways in which this endangers the kingdom. Mm. Yeah. That it's ultimately their sex brings down the kingdom. Basically (laughs) is what, where, where we go. Yeah. Even though like, especially since Mordred does, does Arthur have any culpability with like Mordred? Because I feel that, I do feel that the Lancelot Guinevere story is often presented as the thing that mm-hmm. eventually is the downfall, but I also feel like there wouldn't have been that sort of a thing if Mordred hadn't been in the situation. If he hadn't exploited it, right. I mean, but it actually yeah. all kind of fits together in the sense that basically sex ruins kingdoms yeah. because it's yeah. this illegitimate son from this mm. questionable sexual relationship, which mm. is what ultimately it's essentially that combined with this illicit sexual relationship happening with his wife, that these two things are what bring down the kingdom together, essentially. Mm-hmm. So don't have sex and don't have something that Never. can last. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Never. Never. So we finally meet Mordred, who uh, pops on in, introduces himself, he and is uh, very much uh, presents himself as being uh, not the most ethical kind young gentleman mm-hmm. uh, he does not really hide the kind of person that he is uh, he lets Arthur know that he is his son and uh, then Arthur's basically like oh well I mean you know we could we could like you know fix you I guess right mm-hmm. and he's like mm, uh-uh, not me doesn't he have some line about I like my women married and my morals weak Yes, yes. It's, uh, I actually wrote down the whole thing because I really liked it. I like my ladies married, my willpower weak, my wine strong, and my saints fallen. Mm. And at some point, uh, Arthur basically says, "Like I've, like, you know, I've like had seen souls worse than yours get polished, and uh, you know, and uh, uh, and he's like, mm, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. He goes, and at some point, he goes, "What kind of knight could you make of me?" And there's a kind of, Ugh, it would take a miracle to make you not the worst. Mm. Which we we have a guy in the court who has done miracles, but mm, yes, but currently <laughs> occupied. And apparently, I think there is, I think this is in Once and Future King, that there's like the miracles and there's this question of is his loss of purity coming with his relationship with Guinevere? Is this going to ruin his ability to work miracles? Okay. 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 I mean, I knew that he's usually not a candidate for the Holy Grail because of his relationship with Guinevere. 
Yeah, and that's somewhere. I think that's Once in Future King, and I think it's not an not uh, in any of the medieval Arthurian adaptations. But I'd have to double check. That's just my because that's okay. just my vague memory of things. But I think that is a mm. discourse that there's this kind of miracle working thing, and then it's like, well, but can he? Because he yeah. is too sexy now <laughs> <laughs> then arthur runs out of the room and mordred immediately jumps upon his throne and sadly we do not have his song about vices mm. which i miss yeah. deeply yeah yeah we could have cut out a lot there's a lot of even just we could have cut out people just staring at the camera for long extended <laughs> scenes right i'm not sure that we need it was entertaining but i'm not sure that we need the like 15 minute scene with arthur trying unsuccessfully to explain trial by jury to pelinor yeah Mm -hmm. let's say you rob a guy named william i don't know william (laughs) it's like i've never met anyone named william and he's like well if this jury is impartial how could they ever come to a decision Arthur once again has managed to find a friend that nobody likes, I guess, in Mordred. There's this bit where Lancelot's like, dude, Mordred's the worst. And Guinevere's like, wow, like this night feels like an awesome party because it's the first night Mordred's not here for dinner. (laughs) And he's like, (laughs) and Arthur's just like, he's my son, guys. I I, I don't know what to tell you. And we have this whole bit as well that's explicitly brought in that I don't remember being in the 82 production about how the reason he never legitimized Mordred is because he was hoping for the best in terms of uh, he and Guinevere having had a son Mm -hmm. together, which they obviously did not. Mm -hmm. I I don't know. I don't think that's in the show, but I feel like I've... I can't tell how much is like I'm conflating the show with like every other piece of Arthurian right. retelling that I have engaged with because I do feel that is a common thread because mm-hmm. like, I remember that being a huge plot in the Mists of Avalon where Guinevere is like yeah. really upset that she cannot bear any children. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I don't know how much I'm conflating the two. Right. <laughs> Arthur and Guinevere try to bond and they have their song about basically what do poor people do and how can we fetishize and imitate them (laughs) at least they're not building a miniature peasants village on the castle grounds right it's something but yeah but they're doing this weird like let's dance let's try to whistle let's dance like peasants (laughs) being poor is fun What do the peasants do? I think they whistle. I've heard that somewhere. <laughs> right. But they sadly realize eventually that dancing will not solve adultery. Yeah. yeah. And they have a very yeah. dramatic, silent, teary scene at the very end of it as the, the music goes all all crazy and they're dancing wildly and then just start sobbing. Morgan, meanwhile, is having a grand old time organizing a mock battle in the middle of the like of the throne room with like horses running atop the round table, which dramatically cracks symbolism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> television without there was a TV or there was a website called Television Without Pity, mm. and they would do recaps of TV shows, and they had they referred to stuff like this as like very like anvils or like. It was basically that, like, it was, like, anvils, like, the the plot is dropping on you, like, anvils falling from the sky. Like, the symbolism is, so just think of that, like, it's very anvil-heavy. Right. Yeah, it's like, oh, that wasn't subtle. Yeah. Um, (laughs) 
there's also there's just a lot of looks exchanged uh, increasingly from here on out, right? They just everybody <laughs> exchanged. Like I think you could cut 20 minutes alone by cutting yeah. out some of the dramatic looks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, like the house, the, the animal party is going on in the main hall, right? And then, like. Lancelot goes to get Arthur. Arthur comes out. Arthur looks at it. Arthur grows away. Lancelot looks at everything, and then Lancelot goes away. Then Pelinor comes so out. Drawn looks. Out. Yeah, you're like, we don't need all of this. We just right. We need like thirty seconds of. We don't even need the horses. It could be no. Yeah, like I, I feel like you know you need. Okay, fine. Have the scene where they very symbolically break the round table, and that's basically mm-hmm. all you need. Yeah, and it could yeah. be five minutes shorter. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Arthur runs off depressed to the woods to go hunting and uh, Mordred and uh, he spends some time reminiscing about Merlin and pretending to be a fish. And I do have to say that Richard Harris doing a fish face is very funny. Yeah. This is a part that I would like to have. I would like to edit out. I mean, I I know why it's in here, Mm -hmm. but some of his faces and acting here is kind of worth it. Like it, it should yeah. be a deleted scene on the DVD. Yeah, yeah that's kind of how I feel about yeah. it. And I think this is the scene that was written for the movie that was later put into the licensed mm-hmm. stage show. Okay. But I don't yeah. think it was in the original uh, Broadway yeah. run. Right. Well, the song going into it mm-hmm. is actually from the original production, but mm-hmm. the song is usually sung by Nimue as she's like mm. luring yes, Merlin right. off yeah. into her the watery depth cave of her symbolism. Mm. It's kind of just in but, the background. Like we don't actually ever see I don't think like don't we not actually see who's singing it? No, we don't. Mm. It's right. sort of a chorale and it's um I think it's a very beautiful song and I'm glad they kept yeah. the song. Mm. Um, and I like the way it's used here of sort of an reminiscent idyllic past thing yeah. nostalgia yeah. for like a, a, a past day i just don't feel that this scene needs to be right here <laughs> yeah agreed mm-hmm. mordred shows up and ruins his reminiscing and mm-hmm. uh, basically goads him into uh, announcing that he is going to spend the whole night in the woods and uh, uh see if virtue triumphs while he leaves guinevere and lancelot alone mm-hmm Dad, you it's should spend not. more time with me. <laughs> but then he leaves. It's not even like he hangs out with his dad in the woods because oh. he goes back yeah. to the castle to announce that Arthur is not coming home and then mm-hmm. very, very quickly, unsurprisingly, mm-hmm. catch Lancelot and Guinevere not having virtue triumph. Mm-hmm. But like, they're sitting there saying that they have to end this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Which I always thought, which I... That happens a lot in sort of these illicit affair movies where it's mm-hmm. only when they decide we should end this that they get right. caught. Yeah. But especially since like the entire court is hiding behind the curtains. Mm. Yes. <laughs> I also think it's hilarious that they have this song where she starts by saying like, I loved you in silence for so long. And I'm like, you loved each other in silence for like an hour and a half. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And yeah. I do have to say, uh, I think that song is is my favorite of the entire show. I think it's a gorgeous song. It mm-hmm. does not need to be there. Yeah. It, right. It could be. I don't think it needs to like be. We get it. Yeah. We get your yeah. relationship. You're fine. I think it was. Yeah. Just I don't think it, it even needs to be in the show because in the show it's put right mm. after the jousting tournament and it's her oh, it? real life right. that she loves him. Oh, okay. Oh, that yeah. actually, yeah, that makes more sense. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I, but also, I mean, I'm sure it was like, Oh, you know, we got to give Julie Andrews another song. So that's why it was mm-hmm. written in the first right. place. Yeah. yeah. 
And, and in general, we actually do have a lot of back and forth about whether he's going to leave. And I think we skipped over the song where he's basically like, I'll leave. And then he goes into the whole song about how, well, I can't because this is like why you're so hot in every season of the year. Yeah. 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 That's the orange dress scene. For yeah. those, those yes, singing. that's right. Yeah, that's about hey, that, that song as well. If ever yeah. I would leave you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mordred pops out from behind the curtain, catches them in the act of making out along with a bunch of uh, guards and other people of the court. And uh, Lancelot manages to fight his way out. Guinevere is captured. Arthur decides, I guess at some point, wait, what the hell was I thinking? Mm. Comes back and everybody exchanges a lot of looks. (laughs) So many looks. In my contract, I need 10 minutes of nothing but looking. It's it's having me think of um, Catherine O'Hara in... Waiting for Guffman, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. the less is more acting. The like, when you look at some, yeah. <laughs> like, when I look at you, I close my eyes, and then I open them when I look away. Yeah. <laughs> Which, incidentally, she does in Beetlejuice. There's a scene where she's like mm. cutting onions or something, and Winona Ryder's there, and she's like, "Ghosts, you're telling me we have ghosts. Well, I have people coming over, so why don't you just, you know?" And she closes her eyes when she finally looks up from the onions to look at Winona Ryder. And the minute I saw that, after having seen Waiting for Guffman about 43 times, uh, I just started screaming, laughing, and nobody knew what I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> of your goes on trial. We, we have our trial by jury now, and the jury uh, unsurprisingly decides that she's guilty because everybody at the court has known she's guilty for years. This <laughs> seems sort of a... Uh bad idea that this is your first trial by jury yes <laughs> the first two that we, we've inaugurated the court system let's put my wife on trial for adultery yeah and also it's great because uh, so she's then sentenced to be burned at stake which i'd like to know is never the punishment for either treason or adultery mm-hmm. <laughs> she's a witch I don't know. it's really like heresy is actually what it yeah. mainly is used for and there's a couple okay. of places where witchcraft and not everywhere so in uh, like france that's for witchcraft but in england yeah witchcraft is hanging okay but yeah but heresy is mostly burning out the stake and hmm. she's not guilty of heresy yeah as far as i know <laughs> she loves saint genevieve yeah we didn't see the full trial though <laughs> yeah well yeah but then we have the song while she's being put on the stake which is just all the women being like eh, it's fine lancelot's gonna come rescue her right mm-hmm. <laughs> and they're all just rooting for her they're like lancelot come on yeah it, it, it goes into a whole thing of like it seems like this entire thing is a show of yes they're all doing this with the uh, with the idea that lancelot is going to come save guinevere and so guinevere is not going to have to be put to death but they're still having to put her to death because of the, it does, it makes sense, but right. it doesn't make sense. Mm. Especially since Arthur's yeah. the king. Well, there's a lot of discussion of how Arthur's in this no win situation, allegedly, mm. which I don't actually think is true where yeah. he can't just pardon her because then the legal system seems meaningless, which I don't actually think is the case based on medieval standards. He can't, mm. It would be problematic if he just basically said, don't worry about it, everything's fine. But if he mm-hmm. said, you're guilty, but I sentence you to be in a nunnery for the rest of your life. Mm. Yeah. That would be fine. Mm. Yeah. I don't think that undermines the legal system to just say basically like, okay, like I'm, I'm not going to kill you, but mm. I'm also not going to let you carry on as queen. I think that would have yeah. been mm. fine. Yeah. And a lot of that's coming from Mordred too, who at yes. this point in time, what we know of him is that 
nobody likes him. So <laughs> yes, well, he seems to have his marauding band of youngsters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So he's now part of the warriors. <laughs> and at some point, it says I think that he's gotten in touch with the exiled knights. Mm-hmm. So there are hints that he is exploiting tensions within the court successfully. Mm-hmm. But we don't see a lot of that behind the yeah. scenes stuff yeah. with Mordred. Lancelot, of course, arrives with his army and Guinevere is rescued and a bunch of knights are killed. And of course, they now desire revenge. And so we're going to have to have a war, which Arthur is very sad about and Mordred mm-hmm. is very smug about. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then it brings us back to the beginning of the, the movie. Uh, yes. To the, to the scene where... Arthur's awaiting battle. Yes, and he meets Lancelot and Guinevere, who uh, say that first that they want to return with him and try to mm-hmm. let justice be done, uh, to which he says, that just means like you're both going to get executed, let's not do that. <laughs> and also they everybody wants revenge anyway, so it's not even going to solve anything. We also learned that Guinevere is not with Lancelot. She's off hanging with some nuns. Mm. And she's cut her hair. Mm. Right. Which seems like a too little too late. <laughs> <laughs> like yeah. i've started a war through this decade like decade long uh, sexual affair but now mm. i'm gonna now i'm gonna be a nun and not move in with him mm. also she's still married so yeah doesn't she can go live in the nunnery but i don't think she can be a nun yet since arthur is still alive if your husband gives permission you actually can Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, that's a, that's a general rule, yeah, is that people who are married can decide to uh, embrace a celibate life. Yeah, the idea is that, in theory at least, that they should both embrace a celibate life and uh, mm-hmm. that she at least would enter the nunnery. Uh, he mm-hmm. would. He's a king, so there may be ways around it, but like probably mm-hmm. would, under ordinary circumstances, not necessarily be able to remarry. But mm-hmm. sometimes that maybe gets a little flexible, especially because she is accused of adultery. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that actually would uh, would change things. But yeah, we actually have, uh, it goes in the other direction too. I actually have a document from 14th century Catalonia, which is a woman who basically says like, yeah, so my husband's a monk now. I gave permission for it. And also now I manage all of his stuff. Okay. <laughs> That's a movie I want to see. <laughs> <laughs> right? It'd be a great yeah. movie. Yeah. I'm all for like a 14th century Catalan documents getting made into movies. And, and yet mm-hmm. they never do somehow. They don't, no, you don't. They all go off into the, I would say sunset, but I guess it's just fog. Mm-hmm. And uh, we have our final note of slight hope, which is that a child shows up and talks about how he wants to be a knight because he's heard about knighthoods from stories. And Arthur finds this hopeful because it means that something about what he's done has inspired people. And he knights the kid and tells him to mm-hmm. go and run off home and not be in the battle. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't find it weird that there is a child wandering around this this like camp and or battleground yes. in the middle of the night. <laughs> yes, and also they're in France. This kid is from I think it says Warwick. So uh, we have mm-hmm. this like ten year old kid who I guess like stowed away on the boat yeah. to fight in a war. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, this ending kind of reminds me of the Lorax, mm-hmm. honestly. Mm. Yeah, you know, where the Wunfler gives the kid the the tree or the the seed and. 
says, take it and go build the Trefula trees. I also think it's interesting that this is where it chooses to end since. Yeah. Since the Arthur story still goes on. Like we haven't had the decisive battle between Arthur and Mordred. Arthur is not about to go off to Avalon. There's an interesting thing. Like I think it's interesting that there is no mention of the Holy Grail in all of this. Yeah. Arthur, uh, Lancelot and Guinevere, like all three are still alive and they've just sort of somewhat been reconciled. But like all of their stories still continue. Right. And here is where we have decided to end this story. Yes. Mm. I guess now we can talk a little bit about what they got right and wrong in (laughs) this representation. Which you've already touched on a lot of it. Uh, The aesthetics certainly are an interesting mix. The map of England I'm also quite fond of because, first of all, it is obviously a script that is probably 15th, 16th century. And also everything is just like in, you know, modern English. Mm -hmm. But also I do love that there is all there is this kind of patchwork breakup of England into these various little kingdoms, which is accurate to the real period where if there were a King Arthur, that's where he would be. But mm-hmm. then we just have France, and France is just its own thing that is actually perfectly unified and fine. <laughs> <laughs> Which is questionable. Yeah. With no English people, and yeah. Also, in terms of visuals, so we've got this round table, and I find interesting the choice that they made about what the round table looks like because it is clearly based on a real thing that you can go see called the Winchester Round Table, which is a late 13th century thing that alleges to be a replica of the real quote, the quote, real round table. And uh, so it's, and it probably was made basically for they were planning on having like an Arthurian themed tournament in honor of uh, the marriage of, uh, I think, one of the daughters of Edward I. But what then does get not included, thankfully, in the round table replica that we see in Camelot is that if you actually go and see this thing now, in the 16th century, Henry VIII added a bunch of his own decoration to it. Of course. (laughs) Which includes that now there's a big Tudor rose right in the middle of it. And also there's a picture of King Arthur who looks suspiciously like Henry VIII. (laughs) Uh, Not surprising. (laughs) (laughs) Interesting set of choices about that. Mm Mm-hmm. But, you know, there are, there are actually some things that I think get done somewhat well. I like that people talk about religion a lot and that people and that, you know, we have Guinevere praying to a saint, that we have this sense of a veneration of saints as something that is a part of society. And there actually are examples of a saint, I don't think, not Saint Genevieve in particular, but what would have been interesting is if she had prayed to one of these, uh, the various saints who are opposed to entering or their arranged marriages. I think that would have been mm-hmm. a fun choice. Uh, Mm -hmm. Although, of course, those saints are opposed to entering arranged marriages because they want to hang with Jesus and not because they want more men to fight over them. Mm -hmm. I'm trying to think of like my saints knowledge, but aren't a lot of them a little bit? Well, no. okay, there are a lot of Roman ones, but like I guess I'm just thinking of in the time of quote unquote, the real King Arthur, Mm -hmm. a lot of them still hadn't quite yet come up. Like, I don't know. Isn't St. Agnes a little bit later? I think a lot of them, at least, I can't remember the exact dates on all of them. I think a lot of those are like in the period of alleged Roman persecution of Christians. Because it's all these people who are like the daughters of pagan kings. Right. 
Because I believe St. Lucretia is the first one I think of, of right. that who she was supposed to marry like a pagan king and just, and didn't want to and then like mm-hmm. jumped off a bridge or something. I could be confusing. Right. Her, I, like I believe St. Lucretia is one of the first ones I think of in that type of yeah. setting. I think St. Catherine of Alexandria might be uh, one of those as well who uh, yeah. is supposed to marry some pagan and doesn't want to because Jesus. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think she's, I think she's early enough. Uh, St. Genevieve actually is, I guess she's just early enough. She uh, would have died in the early sixth century. Mm-hmm. She's, she's probably sort of near a near contemporary of a historical Arthur were there one. Yeah. I also thought it was interesting that they chose St. Genevieve specifically. Yeah, it's a weird choice in that I don't see any particular reason to think that she would have been especially, I don't think she would have been especially popular in England. Mm -hmm. And she's not completely unheard of, but she's not everywhere either. What I looked up about her, what I I saw about her was that she's the patron saint of Paris. Yes. Which I get, so I think they were going with, Guinevere is French, not Welsh. Right. And so she's praying to the patron saint of Paris, which I don't think the capital of France or the King's Court of France was in Paris at this time. I could be wrong. Right now, capitals and kings in France are a little bit messy if we're talking about the 6th century. True, 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 true. So yeah, yeah, I I, I don't understand it from that point either. But again, I guess like... I mean, I, I'm trying to think of like other saints that would have like a three syllable name and if they would fit. And yeah, maybe they went down a list and were sort of like St. Agnes, right. St. Elizabeth. <laughs> Catherine or Barbara could have mm-hmm. maybe worked and I think would have made more sense, but I think they don't sound as good in the song. Yeah. Also like Saint, yeah like also like i think I th- also i wonder if barbara would be a uh a, a tiffany problem yes um, like one of those things that sounds modern even though it isn't yeah 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 so i wonder if that also fit in like because genevieve does sound fairly old-fashioned and it sounds sort of similar to guinevere so yeah you know while you're so yeah so she, instead of like you know like mod over right Amber. Right. <laughs> One of the things that I find a little frustrating is so that there is this uh, common stereotype, of course, of the Middle Ages as being this time when nobody knew what a law was, mm-hmm. <laughs> which I came across recently, actually, this uh, ridiculous interview with an actor who was in one movie about the Middle Ages and then did this whole interview where he just explained wrong things about the Middle Ages to somebody. And mm-hmm. one of the things he said was at some point that there was no punishment for murder or a law in the Middle Ages. Um <laughs> So that that wasn't true. Has he been getting uh, his like his information from Game of Thrones or something? Like basically, yes. Yeah, yeah. Um, actually, like worse even. Like I think Game of Thrones did a, does a better job than yeah. he does of well, describing the medieval world. There's an author I remember um, that touched on something like this because mm-hmm. I think I mentioned him in our podcast. His name is Park Godwin. He's written a King Arthur trilogy. But then he also wrote a wrote a Robin Hood novel where he sets it mm. during the Norman Conquest and not Richard II. Huh, okay. So that Robin Hood Right. Or like Robin and his people are all Saxons and Huh. Oh, that's an then, interesting choice. 
the Duke of Nottingham and all of them are all Normans. And so he mm. does open it with a whole thing of like about Anglo-Saxon law and like yeah. what, how it influenced they, they our modern it. day courts. And like, mm-hmm. so that was sort of my first introduction to medieval law. <laughs> yeah. So they had law. They uh, mm-hmm. had often a very kind of complicated uh, legal system that was uh, tended to be influenced in these very, in various different countries by some combination of uh, these uh, Germanic local legal traditions. And then they have a, uh, a bunch of kind of written customary law that pops up uh, often even kind of city by city or lordship by lordship. And uh, then they also then have uh, an increasingly, we see the influence of Roman laws interest gets revived in that in the 12th, 13th century. And of course, and there's also canon law or church law. So this very complex and multifaceted legal system And I also think it's important to note that trial by combat is actually something that is that exists within the context of the legal system, that it's essentially that you can choose under certain circumstances to call for trial by combat, often when certain other forms of evidence are absent. Okay. And so they're actually a bit more connected than Arthur presents them as ideally being, as, as theoretically being. And Pelinor is actually kind of right in the, when he says that, oh, well, we get to the court and then we fight. He's actually kind of not wrong that yeah. that could be something that would happen. And the other thing that I thought was interesting that he's presented as being ridiculous, but that he's kind of not wrong about this bit where they basically say like, but well, if the jury's impartial, how could they come to a decision which I think is interesting because rumor and reputation are so important in the medieval legal system that they talk very explicitly about us. They use the term fama in Latin and mm. uh, essentially basically just this means that basically character witnesses matter a great deal for determining somebody's guilt or innocence. Okay. As well as the validity of other witnesses to testify, right? That it's like, well, does this is this person only testifying against this other person because because they hate them and everybody knows that they hate each other, mm-hmm. and so the the community and the place of the people involved in a in a given trial within the community is actually really important as a part of the medieval legal system. So again, Pelinor is actually kind of right. <laughs> <laughs> He could, we could have a rewrite Pelinor as like the one person like actually spouting like things right. like, that yeah. are actually going on. Yeah, exactly. Pelinor is actually secretly the most sensible person in the movie. Mm-hmm. I then tend to also for the Historia ad Veritas section, jump into a little bit more detail about a real person event or phenomenon. And I want you to talk a little bit about knightly culture and chivalry. So the term chivalry just kind of very broadly means essentially kind of things having to do with knights and includes a lot of different things in terms of both the relationships and expectations about a relation, uh, the kind of connections between a knight and their lord, as well as often having a connection, of course, to the courtly love tradition, which is this uh, very kind of ritualized and performative uh, set of, re- of, I- of, re- of ideal relationships that are essentially kind of created between a knight and a woman who is often somebody of higher status. And I think the same Wa song is actually really interesting in that it actually highlights a lot of aspects of knightly masculinity in that it talks about obviously this big emphasis on military skill, but also on piety, which is something that often gets cut out in modern representations of medieval knights, that they're presented as pretty kind of fundamentally a religious. Mm. 
And not that there weren't problems every now and then with marauding knights messing with churches and priests. And in fact, uh, there are attempts in the 11th, 12th century to try, or the 10th, 11th century to try and remedy that and get knights to be maybe a little more pious. But especially as we move into the classical period of Arthurian literature, knightly piety is a really important part of what it means to be a knight. And if you Mm. read texts like the Arthurian romances or Gawain and the Green Knight, they talk a lot about Jesus. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) I I found in general that that's something that I don't see a lot of in modern day depictions of medieval periods. My personal thought is that some of that has to do with American puritanical and or evangelical aesthetic where we view, we especially white people growing up in a non-Catholic tradition or Mm non-Catholic Christian tradition in America have a very different sense of that type of religion as a daily aspect of our lives than elsewhere or, or how, how it would have been. And it's also this kind of weird thing where there's this expectation, I think to some extent often of an audience that might be a sort of vaguely secular one and that it might therefore be harder to identify with a person who is deeply religious, but that's not what the plot is about necessarily that they're just kind of, mm-hmm. that they're in some ways kind of casually deeply religious, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. We don't usually have protagonists like that, that instead we often have these weird figures of these uh, modern atheists that you pop into the middle ages. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, well, and I, was, I think that's also why it's a like it's I, I, mean, I distinguish between Catholicism and a lot of the yeah. rest of, and I'm when I say Catholicism, I also include the Orthodox churches. Mm-hmm. Um, like I live in a very Greek neighborhood, and there's there is a lot of that of like, and I grew up in a very Catholic family, and so I think of it, I compare like living in America to times I visited Ireland or yeah. Italy, where there is sort of like that, like most of the population is Catholic and Mm -hmm. or my current neighborhood where it's even just sort of on a day to day thing. Yeah. Certain religious feast days and certain practices that people have that I don't necessarily see in a in the Protestant American culture. Mm-hmm. That's something about having more ritual in some ways that makes religion mm-hmm. uh, potentially more present, uh, which is actually why I, uh, having grown up Jewish, find Catholicism in some ways more comprehensible than Protestantism mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. in terms of the kind of function culturally uh, that ritual plays and the, the way in which like you can be culturally Jewish and culturally Catholic. I feel like mm-hmm. you can't really be culturally Protestant. Like, what does that actually mean? <laughs> yeah. Potlucks. <laughs> you, you like mayonnaise? Like, I don't know. Yeah. Mormon funeral potatoes and ambrosia salad. (laughs) Right. Yeah. And so I really like that this movie in general has a lot of religion, but also really emphasizes that as being part of what makes you a good knight is having this uh, uh, extreme and visible piety. Mm -hmm. And the other thing that I'm going to note about chivalry is that chivalry has been in the news recently. Yes. Because there is this high school in Shallow yeah. Water, Texas, yes, yes <laughs> that came up with this assignment of uh, basically Chivalry Day, where uh, there were rules for men and rules for women about how to reenact medieval chivalry, which by which they really just mean very stereotypical traditional gender roles. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I want to note is that in addition to being really misogynist and terrible 
It is also a not great representation of medieval chivalry in that mm-hmm. the chivalric courtly love tradition really emphasizes actually the kind of women at kind of on this pedestal in some ways and men as performatively doing these acts of services for women and women really basically kind of telling them what to do. <laughs> Mm -hmm. And in this assignment, you instead have the opposite, right? That women aren't supposed to argue with men in any way and aren't supposed to demonstrate any kind of intellectual superiority or otherwise exercise power. Whereas these actual relationships, especially when you keep in mind the fact that it's almost that the idealized version of it is often a a woman who is of higher status than the man. She Mm -hmm. is in some ways that, of course, the power... The kind of power relationship is complicated by gender, of course, but from a uh, social status perspective, she has uh, power over him in some ways. And that very much comes out of the courtly love tradition that as a gender relationship, it's not great. And it definitely has some misogynist elements, but it's actually better than it is in this assignment. (laughs) Mm. That that has me thinking of, um, I'm currently on a, in a, book club setting thing where we're uh, reading the Silmarillion, Mm. um, which is sort of Tolkien's prequel to Lord of the Rings. And I feel that's a very good description of how Tolkien writes women and especially their relationship with men Uh um, is that, yeah, it might not, it it is not how you put it is the way I would put it. Mm. Like it's, it's not what you think, but it's a very different relationship um, with a lot of women being sort of put on a pedestal over men or in a mm-hmm. higher society or a higher situation to men or the men that they are in a relationship with. And yes, it has its own problems, but it's not the problems that most people are discussing in this type of situation. Right. But there's a real tendency to uh, flatten the history of misogyny and assume mm-hmm. that misogyny was always basically the same and that if it differs, it differs in degree, not in kind. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. Whereas while there certainly is some very real medieval misogyny, one of the things that I find very striking is that often in representations of the medieval world, what you basically just see is extreme versions of modern misogyny Mm -hmm. that often kind of create these weird circumstances where the women, where you have like women who have less agency in representations of medieval history or literature than the actual like real or fictional people were in the Middle Ages. Yeah. Chivalry. Maybe not great, <laughs> but also maybe uh, not as bad as they think it is in Texas. <laughs> <laughs> we can now jump into the uh, the Fabula Nostra, where we talk about a film, show, whatever, inspired by this one. And I'm just going to go first just very quickly, which is that really all I want is uh, they talk about things as love triangles when really they're like love angles. Because they mm-hmm. don't have the last connective line. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I really, I just want the one where it's actually like the love triangle, right? <laughs> like, just acknowledge the sexual tension between Lancelot and Arthur and just like have them also be sleeping together. I yeah. think it would actually mm-hmm. make it all, make the whole narrative make much more sense. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Especially with Arthur's defense of him so much. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That it really does, yeah, that I think it really does only make sense with Arthur also having this kind of obsession with Lancelot and also the idea that Lancelot is betraying Arthur as much as Guinevere is betraying Arthur. 
mm-hmm. and the kind of intensity of that. I And I think it also would connect to the ways in which uh, I think it is worth noting that it's not this isn't something that usually is overtly dealt with, but that there are definitely homoerotic elements, arguably, in some of the intense relationships that you see between men in medieval literature. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. Well, I remember in the book, The Mists of Avalon, like, mm-hmm. she does explicitly make Lancelot bisexual. I don't remember yeah. if Arthur is confirmed, but I and I do think at one point in time they do have a threesome, mm-hmm. but it never really goes beyond that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, Which I is, just, I just want, yeah. Arthur and Lancelot yeah. to also be having an affair. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I would read and or watch that. Yeah. <laughs> For mine, because I think Arthur has kind of been done to death. Yeah. I would want to go back to the original stage production, take the character of Nimue. Mm. Especially since she is based off of the character, like in Lamorte Archer, the Artur, she is Nineveh, and she's a sorceress. And so once she and Merlin have their whole thing, she kind of shows up throughout the rest of the story, like helping things out. So I would kind of want some sort of like maybe Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead type of a thing of seeing the story through her eyes as like this sorceress who's on the outskirts of things who kind of shows up and eventually helps things and then goes away. And then I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if it would be a comedy or I think it would probably be best as a comedy, but like have yeah. sort of like Nimue and or Nineveh, like sorceress lady show. Yeah. <laughs> have you seen Cursed? I have not seen Cursed yet. I've I've heard about it, but it's, I've not. Yes. And that, that is centered on Nimue. Oh, okay. Yeah. It is, it is not a comedy. <laughs> <laughs> I started thinking about, and forgive me because I know, there's no basis in in any sort of truth from this, but that's fine. Like Monty Python and the Holy Grail slash Spam mm-hmm. a lot, and there is the character who is supposed to be married off to the woman with the large tracts of land, and yeah. But all he wants to do is sing, and I'm like, I'm wondering if Camelot kind of inspired that character, just the <laughs> like. Oh, life would be so much better if we just sang, and uh, you know. But also, I mean, to kind of go along with what David was saying, I also, I've always been fascinated by the character of Morgan Le Fay. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I'm not a, a voracious reader of, of, of fantasy or anything, so I don't know how well-trod that, that land is. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but yeah, I would, I would love to see something, even, even something was like, history has misunderstood, like a, like a Gregory Maguire uh, treatment yeah. of Morgan Le Fay. Like, uh, you know, history has turned her into the villain, but... Here's the mm-hmm. here's the story. Just kind of point her in a paint her in a in a better light. Uh. Mm. <laughs> yeah, I think that would be really fun. I, I, I think really, these, I think the character. Yeah, I think they started to do that with the what was it Sam Neill Merlin TV oh, show. Okay. Yeah, but that was focused all on Merlin, not anybody, not anybody else. I just I I think I can't remember Helena Bottom Helena Bonham Carter. I don't know if she played Morgan Le Fay or Morgoss. Because I remember there was mm. like, she played a human woman who was in that sort of role. But then there was also right. like a queen of the fairies character who was bad. Mm-hmm. And so I don't remember which one was Morgan Le Fay. But yeah, they, they, they kind of did something with that in that TV show, which has stuck with me, even though I only saw it once when I was very young. <laughs> 
I, I completely forgot about that show. Yeah, and the there's the BBC Merlin, which is like Arthur babies, basically. They're like oh. all like <laughs> 17 or something. Yeah. <laughs> mm. like, and like Merlin is, you know, the same age or like a little bit younger than Arthur, which mm. is interesting. Mm. But Morgan is this character who like starts out as one of the good guys and kind of transitions into being a villain. But she is a, a very understandable villain in a lot of ways. Like, and I actually think that ultimately she is much more interesting or compelling than either Arthur or Merlin. And like Arthur in particular is mm-hmm. awful. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so yeah, it's like, it's... even when she becomes the bad guy, like I kind of wanted her to win. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Like in, in the musical Rent, Benny was right. They have to pay their rent. <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, but, but no, I, I, yeah. Did anyone see the uh, the recent, the kind of the updated movie with Ian McKellen as Merlin? No. I think it was just in no, the past year. No, I haven't Apparently it was not a great success. But then again, I don't know mm-hmm. if its release was a... Uh, oh, wait. I, to, vague, uh, I didn't see it, but I do remember there being a recent... Uh, yeah. Arthur movie. Yeah. Um, There's so many Arthurs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, th- but I think it came out like right before, right as everything was like Shutting falling down. down. Yeah. yeah. That's mm. what I thought. Cause I remember seeing the, the, the preview when we went to see some movie mm. and I was like, Oh, that might be kind of cute. And everybody's like 12 years mm. old, you know, Arthur's like mm-hmm. the little kid that gets picked on in middle school or, Whatever they have in England, I forget which. Um, yeah. Was this King Arthur Legend of the Sword? Oh, God, that was a terrible movie. Merlin's actually not in that. Oh. Right. Yeah, that's the weird Guy Ritchie movie where it's like yeah. um, King Arthur, but it's Lock, Stock, and Two Smoking Barrels. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I remember that. Patrick Stewart mm-hmm. is Merlin and the kid who would be king, which is kind of cute. Oh, that might be what I'm thinking. Uh, maybe it was Patrick Stewart. And that was not. like 2019. Oh, okay. Then I'm... Okay. And that was very cute. I watched it on a plane. Uh, it's like it's like a modern kid who pulls the sword out of the stone, and he's Arthur now. Yeah, that's okay. kind of what this, this, uh, this new movie is kind of like. Which raises a lot of really complicated questions about what statement the movie is making on like twenty first century English governance. Yeah, but <laughs> and democracy. Yeah. But you know. Yeah, no. It looks like. Uh, yeah, two thousand nineteen. Uh, the kid who would be king. Oh, yeah, Patrick Stewart. I think. Yeah, I, I think mm-hmm. that's exactly the one that uh, that I was talking about. I I don't know why I thought it was Ian McKellen. Maybe because because they're. <laughs> I mean, Ian McKellen should play Merlin, right? I think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. At some point, mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> Rebecca Ferguson is Morgana. Yeah, and she's like the main bad guy. I think. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. Because one other thing about Camelot is that. An Arthurian story, at least my familiarity with them, there's not a lot of magic in it. There's not a lot of, right. you know, mm-hmm. I think I, I just want more fantasy in this, this kind of fantasy Yeah, Because mm-hmm. it's interesting, because there's also a lot of side Merlin stories yeah. that have more magic, but that are often sort of disconnected. Uh, there's also even, like, there's weird, like, there's uh, this collection of stories of miracles of the Virgin Mary that mm-hmm. include actually a story that Merlin pops up in that involves like, it's also one of the ones that's like vaguely anti-Jewish or not that vaguely anti-Jewish <laughs> about like a Jewish child who's born, whose like head is born back. Like, he's born with like his head backwards or something like that. Oh, wow. And uh, only the Virgin Mary can help. But like Merlin's hanging out there too. And like tries to like convince the Jews to convert to Christianity. I think like it's a weird story. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> 
Okay. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, uh, we can now move into our last main segment where we, the estimatio, where we rate this movie on a scale from one to five based on whatever fully subjective criteria each of us sees fit. I had a hard time deciding this because there were things that I actually really enjoyed about the film. I think it's really well acted. Mm -hmm. And weirdly, there are ways in which this is an interesting representation of the medieval world that's not quite as annoying in its representation of certain tropes as a lot of other things I have seen. On the other hand, I'm not loving the ever-present quiet misogyny and sometimes not so quiet and very loudly sung misogyny. Mm -hmm. So I think I'm landing on a three. Mm -hmm. I'd also put it as a three. And a lot of that for me comes with as it didn't fix the problems from the show that it really had a chance to. So it, it's, it's a three-hour movie. It drags in a lot of places where it really doesn't. I love a lot of the costumes. Mm-hmm. I think that Vanessa Redgrave's Guinevere is stunning and amazing. Yeah. And I really love a lot of the choices that she makes in this. Yeah. But there are parts of it that are very good. But as a whole, it's kind of middling. Mm. Yeah. So three. Yeah. yeah I'm... I'm- going to go right along with you like you, you know how you how you'd see like movies that just seem to throw as much to the wall as they can and hope something sticks mm-hmm. um and there are movies that were made before like netflix streaming was a thing and yeah. limited series were popular in america as they are over in over in europe and you're like if only that movie were a limited series then they could have done all of this so much easier right. and it would make so much more sense and that's mm. kind of how i feel about this mm. because like the fact that yeah three three and a half hour movie mordred doesn't even show up until like you know two hours in <laughs> Mm-hmm. Right, and if he's supposed to be the big bad, you know, and yeah. they cut his villain song, and they cut his villain mm-hmm. song. <laughs> That's so unfair. <laughs> he doesn't even. I don't think he sings at all in this movie, does he? Mm-mm. No, I wonder if just Mordred really can't sing, but they like, forgot to get somebody to replace him. <laughs> Very possible. So yeah, but yeah, but then again, it's it's it is three and a half hours long. Though I never found myself really that bored by it because I was always yeah by the scenery or, or, mm-hmm. or, or something always, always kept my attention, uh, mm-hmm. which I can't say about a lot of movies nowadays. Uh, <laughs> but I just watched actually a, a much more recent three hour movie that I spent literally the, that I, I kept pausing and like getting up and, you know, getting a, you know, getting a drink or some food or something. And I would look at it and I go, I still have 45 <laughs> minutes left of this. Yeah. And I yeah. didn't find myself doing that anywhere near as much with this. Yeah. There were some times I would like pick up my phone while you know people were staring at each other for a minute, yeah. but I didn't. Yeah, yeah. Like I, I had I had that experience recently. I had never seen the movie Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure until mm. like a couple of years ago, and my my fiance was like, "You haven't seen this? Well, it's on Amazon. We're going to sit down and we're going to watch it." And it it got to where it, yeah, there was like forty five minutes left, and I was like, "This isn't over yet. It feels like it's been going on." For hours and hours and hours, so we we eventually just shut it off. Um, <laughs> I know I feel like a, a heretic for saying this, child of the eighties, <laughs> not enjoying Bill and Ted's, but there we are. Well, see, I think I think three seems yeah. seems like we're yeah. all in the same place. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Matt, David, thank you so much for mm-hmm. joining me. Uh, are there places where the listeners could find you on the internet? We do have a Facebook group that's kind of 
non we're not doing a whole lot with it right now, but we should. Yeah, um, yeah. And I've been trying to like add, add some more. Yeah. But if you look up uh, Thank You Five podcast on Facebook, you can find our group. Mm-hmm. Um, you can also follow us on Twitter at Thank You Five Pod. Um, all of that's spelled out. Yes, and of course you can hear our crossover episodes. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there will be uh, in total two uh, two additional episodes uh, on your podcast of us talking Camelot. Yeah, yeah. That, that one will go into more about the the history and yes. the actual stage production. Yes. Mm-hmm. So, and if you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe in your preferred podcatcher app and rate and review Media Evil on Apple Podcasts. And follow the podcast on Twitter at Media Evil Pod and join our Facebook group. And you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sarah F. Decker. If you have any questions or suggestions, I would love to hear from you via email at media.evilpod at gmail.com. Thank you again for joining me. And thank you all for listening to Media Evil. Bye. 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 <laughs> I give it to you. And fidelity is only for your mate. You'll never find a virtue on statusing my quo or making my BLZ bubble burst. Let others take the high road, I will take the low. I cannot wait to rush in where angels fear to go. With all those seven deadly virtues, free and happy little me has not been cursed.